So hi and welcome to yet another episode of Cast It. Our guest today is Robin Hansen, and uh, one of my favorite Robin Hansen quotes about Robin Hansen goes something along these lines. Whenever I talk to an economist and they tell me about their work, my reaction is something like, eh, maybe, and then I forget about it. But when I talk to Robin Hansen, my reaction is, no way, impossible. And then I think about it for the rest of the year. So, Robin, welcome to this conversation. I hope I can live up to that. (laughs) Yeah, great to be here. Or are you actually here? Because we might actually have this conversation entirely in virtual reality. We will will find out. Um, So, Robin has done a lot of work about many, many things. Prediction markets, a recent book about social psychology, maintains a very interesting blog about overcoming bias. But the reason I wanted you here is to talk about mind uploading. And that's the result of uh, Robin's first book, The Age of M. Work, love and life when robots rule the earth. Very nice. (laughs) This is almost a talk show ready quality now. Um, So this appears now even in... There's a paperback version, which is slightly revised and better. So it's cheaper. Might as well get the paperback. More words. Uh, 20% longer. And now it's also available electronically, which was not the case in the beginning? Uh, yes, in Europe at least, there's an uh, e-book. Europe. Oh. So Amazon and Oxford have a bit of falling out in terms of uh, agreeing on pricing and things like that. So I successfully downloaded an electronic version of it. Great. Mm-hmm. So the age of M, it's about mind uploading or whole brain emulation that this is sometimes called. Right. And um, there's a lot of ground to be covered, mm-hmm. including the premises for this entire conversation. Yes. Uh, which I want to get out of the way quite quickly, because otherwise it's kind yes. of a black hole where we stay for right. a long time. Um, so just the, maybe just the two-word summary of what this universe is that we talked about. I only get two words. Well, and then you will get back to it <laughs> in order to structure this. Two sentences then. Yeah. So we're not talking about the usual kind of robots or automation based on machine learning or statistics or software. We're imagining a different way to make robots as smart as people. And the concept here is like porting software. So if today, if you want to have a new computer running software that's like on an old computer, you could try to write software like how you think it works. Or you could write an emulator on the new machine that emulates the new machine for the old one. And then you just put the software in the new machine, and it just works because it thinks it's on the old machine. So the idea is to do that for the human brain, to make an emulator for the software that's in our brain. Can I just confuse emulation with simulation, or is there an important difference between these words? It's not especially important for okay, this context. <laughs> but emulation in the, in the way that we can emulate an old Nintendo game on a new computer, right. so, so, the, so, so the game wanna, doesn't know the difference. Right. We want to scan the brain and see what, what all cells are where, connected to what, how. We want to know the type of each cell, and then we want a computer model of how each type of cell works. And then we can put that all together to be a model of the whole brain with the same input-output behavior. That's the definition of an emulation, is it has the same input-output behavior in the same situation. Hmm? So it's a very human-like thing, but it's implemented in artificial hardware, so it has a number of artificial advantages. So that's the key working assumption. And the key thing to notice is this is a pretty specific assumption. Uh, If you just think about what is a future of robots like, you have to make a lot of assumptions in general about, well, what are robots like? How are they built? How are they structured? How do they behave? What do they want? These kind of robots are very easy to understand because they are basically humans and we know a lot about humans. But when you say robots, I already see kind of roughly humanoid uh, physical entities walking around. The robots here don't necessarily have an embodied component. So from the emulation's point of view, they would typically have a body and be in a space, but it would typically be a virtual space. 
And so they would see themselves as embodied and uh, naturally, just like you or I, in a space that matters for them, but it might not be a physical space. They would not be confused about this. We're not right, cheating no, them. No, right? of course they, not. So the emulated minds here, the simulated minds, the uploaded brains, whatever we want to call them, actually, you have a good word for this, and let's just stick to M's. that. M's. E-M. Short for short, emulation. Short for emulation. So these uploaded minds, which we now refer to as M's, live uh, and are completely knowing, they know they live exactly. in a virtual reality. Right. Some of them may be in robots. Right. So from our distant ancestors' point of view, you and I live in pretty virtual environments in the sense that the space we're in is not at all natural. Mm -hmm. And the space we're in, say, has these walls and paintings mm -hmm. and coverings. And underneath the fabric here and artificial behind, lightning. behind the, the paint here, there are artificial structures that mm -hmm. support it all. But we don't care about that. We don't mm -hmm. think about that much. We like this artificial space we're in. We know it's artificial. Mm -hmm. We know this isn't a natural environment. Could, we like it. Could be abhorrent to our ancestors. Well, it would be strange, certainly, mm -hmm. an alien. They, mm -hmm. they wouldn't see us living in a natural world. They'd no. see us in mm -hmm. a strange artificial world. And, and the M's are in the same way. Mm -hmm. They know they're in an artificial world. It's a world they like. So mm -hmm. they're okay with it. Okay, so, so this is the premise, a, a whole brain emulation, simulated minds that live mostly in virtual reality, and I read a lot of science fiction, so now I know exactly what we envision now. It's an old concept in it's science fiction. It's an old concept, and, and uh, since I devour that genre uh, uh, quite a lot, I know exactly what, what I should imagine in this world. So some of you the parameters are, let me, let, me, let, <laughs> yeah. let me just pretend I haven't read your book. Okay. Uh, there, uh, there are no material needs, anything that can be thought of can basically be simulated. So if I want a new car or a house at the beach in California or in Greenland, I can just get that at no more price than downloading new software to my video game. If I want my own planet, I can suddenly get that. So there are no constraints to the material or imagined or simulated material reality I'm in. So everybody is, uh, so this is one example of a so-called post-scarcity uh, society where, where there, is, there is no material uh, desire that makes any sense because you can just invent this. So everybody will walk around having amazing opportunities for self-expression. The world will be highly diverse. Uh, people will hunger for uh, the pursuit of pleasure and the only remaining prop, there will be no wars, there is no, there is no, right. um, there is no illness, there is no death, we will be immortal, we could all look like Brad Pitt or right. Wonder Woman or the Balrog of Moria so and everybody would be filthy rich and the only problem left would be to find meaning in this endless bombardment of pleasure. Or perhaps fight for status and, and recognition. <laughs> in, the, in the huge video game that this world has become. Right. So, so I think everything I said right now was is, wrong. It, what you've described is a common story setting mm -hmm. that people would place this sort of technology in. And I like to say my book is like science fiction except there's no plot and there's no characters and it all makes sense. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so my personal frustration with science fiction over the years is Initially, when I was a naive teenager, it was fun because I didn't know any better. And the more I've learned about the world, the more I realized that a lot of science fiction just doesn't make sense if you think about it. The world doesn't hold together. It doesn't work. Which is really strange because a lot of science fiction is, is informed and sometimes written by people with a highly scientific mindset who, who take meticulous... So that's called hard science fiction. Yeah. And often they're hard about physics or even computer science, but they're not very hard about social science usually. 
because they don't usually know much social science. And in fact, because like it's written by nerds for nerds, right. and, and they, so they are really careful about getting the physics when, right. When I was a physics undergraduate, I was basically told by my professors, those people in that other building across campus called social science, they're making it up. They don't know anything. That's not real science. That's finger painting or something, right? <laughs> right, right. A lot of hard science mm -hmm. people have been told basically social science mm -hmm. doesn't exist. So they mm -hmm. don't think there's anything to know really about social science. They think their own intuitions is the best you could possibly do. And you were here and you have a background in physics. You have a master's in physics from I do, yeah. Chicago. And, and then I did nine years of computer research. Yeah. So you are and, one of the good guys who actually right. knows but what, is, what spent, science is. Then I got a PhD in social science oh and I'm no. now a professor of economics. And so I know that we know a lot of economics and I've tried to describe a scenario where the economics makes sense. So this is in some sense the, 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 the main idea behind this book. Let's take this so far fictional scenario, scenario of this single technology working, brain right. uploading, right. and then let's leverage what we know about social science and everything else, by the way. And make it make sense. And make All it make sense. As far as we can. Of course, I'm sure I'm going to get some things wrong, but it's based on the best sciences I understand. So I'm not trying to be creative or original in most of these things. I'm asking an unusual question, but I'm just trying to apply standard tools, Econ 101, Chemistry 101, Electrical Engineering 101, etc., all the way through to draw standard yeah. conclusions. So, of course, our, our listeners here are wondering, yes, but what's wrong about the story you just told? Mm -hmm. So the key thing to notice is that uh, he was assuming everything was free, and in some sense, the physical environment is free, and as you said, you can have luxurious castles, you can have gold, gold shiny things, you can have silk all the time if you want. All those Cars. physics things, fine, except yep. every minute of experience, you have to pay for. So, But this is you, true today as well, right? Yes, but it gets a lot more expensive in this world. So, Why? This is the thing right? that is hard to understand. So, in history, almost all humans who have ever lived, lived near subsistence level. That yeah. is, they had to work most of the time just to make enough to survive. And that was true for almost all animals who have ever lived as well. Almost all creatures who have ever lived have lived near subsistence level. And almost you and I and most everyone we know are not living near subsistence right. level. So this is a really, really, really strange world. Really strange species and really strange world. And you're used to it and you like it and you feel entitled to it. And so you feel like the future is going to keep it, but you're not guaranteed to keep it. So, but why did this happen? So the key concept here is that population can grow Hmm? And so if we're above a subsistence level, say we can uh, earn more than subsistence, if the population rate can grow faster than the economy, faster than our ability to produce food and subsistence, then the ratio of population to subsistence increases. Do we I need e to explain subsistence at this word? So subsistence is sort of the minimum for right, survival. Right. The, and, and the level you want to be above to not worry about whether you or your children die tomorrow. From right. So if you, if you need to work basically all of your time just to get enough food to survive and, and resources to survive, you're near subsistence. Mm -hmm. But you and I, in principle, we could subsist working just a couple hours a week mm -hmm. and, and live very cheaply somewhere else, mm -hmm. and, and many people do. So we are yep. well above subsistence, but most people did not. And the key thing that's made us most be above subsistence... Most people did not, right? Right, did not. Mm -hmm. And the key difference is, in the last few hundred years, we've grown wealth faster than population. So the ratio of wealth to population has been increasing. So previously the economy and the population sort of kept track with each other whenever well, because the economy, the economy grew. grew slower than the population could and so the, if for, ever for, there for was purely physical right, reasons right. because exactly mm -hmm. so if ever there was an imbalance say a, pan, a, a a pandemic killed a lot of people then for a time wealth was higher than population and then the population grew more quickly than wealth did and so put it back into balance and that's the standard malthusian story that in history if ever people got temporarily rich 
they didn't stay rich long like because... Like from agriculture right. or any of the other great exactly. inventions that made us, that made the economy grow right. one so generation later. On average, during the farming era, or the last 10,000 years up until a few years ago, a human economy population doubled roughly every thousand years, which mm -hmm. was much faster than it did before farming era, when it doubled roughly every quarter million years. But still, the population can grow faster than doubling every thousand years. So just to make sure, when you say the economy is growing and talk about a pre-industrial society, what is measured here? Well, the easy measure is population. Uh -huh, that but is, now it's sort of circular. Well, because uh, people stayed near subsistence level oh, okay. the whole time. Mm -hmm. And so, in fact, population mm -hmm. did track the yep. economy yep. because it was in a subsistence world. And that's a nice, easy thing about mm -hmm. the subsistence world. Mm -hmm. So that's history. History was up until a few hundred years ago, we were mostly living near subsistence. There were a small fraction of rich people, but the typical person was near subsistence. And that's been true for almost all animals, almost all humans. And then suddenly we figured out how to grow wealth faster than population. Thanks to the Industrial Revolution. Exactly. And many people are, love that and it's great. And many people expect it to continue into the future. And I don't think we're going to grow wealth slower. I mean, if, if suddenly we stopped being able to grow wealth, we ran out of inventions, then, then that would be a problem there. But I think the, ac the problem is actually we figure out ways to grow population faster. And that's what happens in the age of M. So emulations are running on computers. And so in order to make more emulations, what you need is more computer hardware. Mm -hmm. But we can make computer hardware fa in factories. Mm -hmm. And we can make stuff in factories fast. In fact, we can grow factories fast. So the typical factory today produces as much value as the factory itself contains in just a few months. Mm -hmm. So the in principle doubling time of the wealth of things that are in factories today is a few months. The reason the economy doesn't double every few months is because labor doesn't double every few months. Uh, when we make more factories and things in factories, eventually we have more than we need. We, we can't use that many and, machines. And labor now is M's. People. Well, today labor is people. Which, and yes. then in the M world, M's produce the labor. And so now we don't need hu biological humans to produce the labor anymore in the M world. The M's who run on computer hardware, they produce the labor. And now the economy of M's can grow much more quickly. So then this, the naive question would be, why would they be so stupid? <laughs> Uh, so, uh, yes. uh, as to get back into the uh, Malthusian trap of growing the population as quickly as they can. So, we economists usually study worlds where no one's in charge. Mm -hmm. Many people find this odd to think about, but in fact, in our world, for most things, no one's in charge. Mm -hmm. No one is actually choosing world characteristics like which computer technologies get introduced where mm -hmm. and the price of various things. Uh, basically, each local organization or person makes choices in their personal interest with foresight to choose what they want. But the net effect of all those choices can be things that not only don't most people want, perhaps nobody wants. So, so far in history, most technology has just appeared when anybody anywhere thought it was a good idea and could implement it. And there wasn't a global veto. Mm -hmm. And so the world we have seen is the net result of all those people introducing all the technologies they each saw as their interest, even when that, for example, produced a Malthusian world. Mm -hmm. So again, until a few hundred years ago, the whole world could have restrained population growth, say, and then it could have gotten rich per person, but they didn't. Okay, so, so right. So, so the answer to my question, why the M world would fail to restrict population is the same 
question as why did we fail to restrain population after we invented agriculture? We right. obviously didn't do that. And even if, I don't right. know, Belgium, which didn't exist then, had keep, keep decided to do that, then Belgium would have been overrun by the neighboring country Eventually, that yes. decided to not do that. The, the sparsely populated rich Belgians would then face a war, for example, with the dense neighboring poor, whatever, Dutch, and, yeah, uh, yeah. and lost. So they would die <laughs> eating delicious chocolate, but they right? would still exactly. Mm -hmm. And so, again, in the M world, I analyze the M world as if no one's in charge. So I use our standard economic analysis tools of supply and demand to say, what's likely to happen if each local group does what's in their interest? Look, the local group could be nations or uh, it could or be At the highest level, or companies, or, yeah, yeah. families, so etc. So no, no one is in charge still means right. that, exactly. that there are no the one normal hierarchies. There's no global be, veto on introducing no, population exactly, yeah. or technologies. It just happens that individuals find it in their interest. There, there is no global mechanism to, to solve the global coordination problem that if we solve right. that, everybody would be better off because right. then we would have my scientific exactly. world where we would all run now, around. I'll have to admit, eventually the, we may get better at coordination and produce a world where we do coordinate at a global level on these mm -hmm. things and then it becomes harder to predict that world right. because now we have to know well, what do these global people want. And, and that's, that's an interesting avenue of right. exploration, but that's not, not what your book is about. And so the key thing mm -hmm. to notice is, so you can might ask, it's a strange world, how could I predict what happens in the strange world? And a key thing is that a Malthusian world is just an easier world to predict than a rich world. So to predict our world, say, from a thousand years ago, you would not just have to know that we have cars and factories and airplanes, you'd also have to know what we want. Because rich people choose what they want, because they can. Oh. Poor mm -hmm. people don't have a choice. Okay. Poor people have to do what it takes to survive. That limits the range of their available behavior, mm -hmm. which makes them much more predictable, mm -hmm. which is why I can tell you about the age of M. I don't need to know that much about what Ms want to tell you what they do. They right. do what it takes to survive. Good. So let me summarize this again. So what we, what we have now is this idea of being able to simulate uh, human brains, run them in virtual environments, copy them, that seems to be, Very that seems to fall out of the basic idea that we can right. run brains on other substrates, so right. clearly the transition from taking, say, my physical uh, fatty brain and running that on right. a different computer is a more dramatic assumption than running another copy of my brain. So right. it seems, seems to follow we're that. We're assuming, in essence, you can separate your brain into hardware and software, and the software can be copied onto other hardware. Let's be really careful with this because so so brains are not universal computing devices that just differ in right. how the neurons fire because a lot of the functionality of the right. brain we know today is embodied in some physical phenomenon like the anatomy of certain neurons. Right. This you would still classify as software, right? Uh, right. So um, there are different kinds of brain cells mm -hmm. and they operate in different ways, but there could be some more general hardware that is able to mimic the different kinds of brain cells mm -hmm. as specified and so the specification of a brain would specify which cells are where connected to what of what type and then what internal state they each have mm -hmm. and then a general brain emulator hardware could run that mm -hmm. it could take the specification mm -hmm. of which cells are where of what type and run it and produce a emulation of the process which has the same input output behavior i.e. you hook it up with artificial eyes and ears and hands and mouth and then you could talk to it it talks back you ask it to do things that might do them just as the original would in the same situation. That's the idea of an emulation. And the assumption is that that is the result of brain cells, which are relatively generic, which have special states, you know, and that that could be encoded in basically a computer file. 
And what you just described is more or less currently the consensus in neuroanatomy or right, um, exactly. even a strong branch of philosophy that says that the brain, this is all there is on the brain. There is no, there is no extra uh, brain spirit right. that, that makes you run. Well, so those topics are of enormous interest to many people, so much so that pretty much any time this concept of emulation or uploads comes up, the conversation goes there. Yeah. People talk about whether an emulation of you is you, whether they're conscious, when it would happen. And I wanted to avoid that conversation. So I said the neglected topic was what would actually happen in this world? And so I chose specifically in this book to just set those questions aside and talk about what would happen. So by definition, an emulation does the same thing in the same situation from the outside. It looks like a person feeling and doing things. I'm not going to make a claim about whether it really is because whether or not it really is, it will seem so. Mm -hmm. And that will create a world that seems a certain way. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to say, what does that world seem like? Mm -hmm. Still, these are super fascinating topics, but they are not. The reason for us not to talk about them is not that we find them boring, but no. But, but we wanted. I wanted to get past that. Yeah, you want to have something new to that. say. Yes, yes. And I so, do think I did have something new to say. And and indeed you did. So so by just taking this assumption that this can be done seriously, you arrive with this single. Maybe there are two assumptions. Right. The assumption is that we can simulate brains. And then a, um, a, a secondary assumption is that we can copy them and we can run them at different speeds as well. These things right. seem to follow from the idea of running them on a, on a different substrate. Right. It's the idea that you can separate a, a computer file specification of a particular brain and then a more general piece of hardware that could run many different brains. Mm -hmm. And then you could move this computer file around. Mm -hmm. You can make a copy of the file, you could send it somewhere else and put it on a new piece of hardware somewhere else mm -hmm. and then that would now mm -hmm. behave like the original would but now on a different piece of mm -hmm. hardware and then now they can diverge with differing experiences. So that's, and of course the fun, final assumption is and this is cheap enough. And this is cheap enough. Right, because if it's too expensive it doesn't matter. Good. So, so I want to spend a bit of time talking about the uh, these assumptions and maybe just mention timescales or something like that and after that we can finally delve into what you're here for but I, right. I know from sure, absolutely. having annoyed many people over lunch <laughs> conversations with exactly well, they, these topics. They want to be careful. We want to be careful and, and, and ignoring these pressing issues of computational theory of mind and right. personality and self and so on just seems to ring false to many people. We're not ignoring them because we don't find them interesting. We're ignoring them because there's something even more interesting to talk about instead. And right. we have finite time. And, and that whatever the answers to those questions are, this other question is still a relevant, interesting question. Ah, good. Right. So it's, a, it's an orthogonal. Right. right. It's an we can still say, what does this world look like? What does this world look like? And this is really surprising that we can do that. And we will get there in a minute. Uh, right. A previous guest on the podcast, Ole Hegström, actually uh, uh, just wrote a paper about mind uploading where he calls this book the um, what was this the unchallenged masterpiece in this niche of I think actually, I'll have to read this paper yes yeah, yeah, <laughs> yes yeah unchallenged masterpiece uh, so uh, far unchallenged masterpiece in the niche of non-fiction descriptions of this world well, that's a virtue of being weird yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> do something weird enough and it is, nobody yeah. will challenge yeah. you for it. it is really weird it um, also, after finishing it the first time, I was not sure I liked it, but I did find out that I like other books way less because <laughs> because this I does set take a higher standard. It, yeah, it, it does take the the topic very very seriously. Um, so, quickly about assumptions. So, so let's just assume that neuroanatomy is right and the brain is really just a physical right. object. 
we are not sure about whether it, this is an, uh, on which level of detail we need to simulate well, a brain cell. I, so let me make the stronger claim that from biological evolution's point of view, each organ in the body has a function. And each organ, the evolution's mainly mm -hmm. selection pressure is on achieving the function. And then there's other features each organ has, and those are mainly selection to reduce cost and produce reliability. That is, uh, you know, your heart mainly pumps, and so evolution tried to make it into a good pump, but of course it's also floppy and it also needs sources. And so, you know, we can think of each organ as in terms of its function, and then if we wanted to replace it, we would mainly focus on replacing the function. Mm -hmm. And we wouldn't really need to replace the other parts, and in mm -hmm. fact the other parts would be superfluous if we could achieve the function okay. without those other parts. And so similarly for the brain, the, br the key story is the brain's function is to process signals. That's what it does, that's what evolution cared about. And so, yes, the brain has many other details, but those details didn't matter that much from the point of view of what evolution was trying to achieve in a brain. And if we replace a brain, all we need to replace is the function, and then we can slot it in and it will, that replacement will now achieve the same function. And so the key claim is that the brain's function is to process signals, i.e. take signals in, uh -huh. change internal state, send signals out. And so, we know many things about signal processing systems engineering <laughs> in other contexts. We, we have phones and computers and, and other sorts of devices. And we know that in general, signal processing systems um, have a limited number of degrees of freedom which represent the signals. And then they have many other degrees of freedom that represent the infrastructure necessary to support that. And they typically try to separate those degrees of freedom. Mm -hmm. They typically try to isolate the degrees of freedom that represent the signals and the stored state from the many other degrees of freedom, which if they interacted too strongly would simply wash out the signal. And so, you know, in a computer there is a wire and it insulators around the wire. And the whole point of having a wire and insulators around the wire is to insulate the wire, the signal states in the wire, from the other states of the system. And so the brain seems to be designed in that same way. That is, brain's cells send signals, they store signals, and they have many, many other degrees of freedom. But the idea is if a brain cell is like the other signal processing engineer systems we know, we expect it to be designed to isolate the key degrees of freedom that represent the signals from the other degrees of freedom. And therefore, we don't expect to need to model all those other degrees of freedom in much detail. We only expect to need to model the key degrees of freedom mm -hmm. okay. that represent the right. signals. So that's, that's the optimistic viewpoint. Right. The pessimistic viewpoint would be that we will never understand what actually goes on from a signal processing perspective in right. the brain. It's so we need right. to simulate every single cell. In which case the cost will be enormous and it will take a lot longer before this is feasible. Right. And so Now eventually it would become feasible, but a key assumption implicit here, which we'll now make explicit, is that this is the first kind of robot as smart as people. If mm -hmm. other kinds of robots, as smart as people, are cheap, cheaper than this and mm -hmm. cheaper first, the scenario plays out mm -hmm. very differently. Mm -hmm. In this scenario, since this is the first kind of robot, as smart as people, there's an enormous demand for these. Mm -hmm. And they basically take over the economy and do most mm -hmm. of the work. That isn't true if we have other kinds of robots, as smart as people, that are even cheaper at the same time.
all other kinds yeah. of artificial intelligence. Right, right. Can we just take I mean, yes. that footnote that there might be a completely yeah. different way of achieving artificial exactly. intelligence, which is, say, understanding symbolic reasoning better exactly. and doing it in a completely different way. And if that happens first, then this scenario doesn't play out really like right. this. So and this is under these assumptions that this not only happens, but happens first. Right. And there would be another nice book to write about the other scenario right, exactly. where some other kind of artificial intelligence arrives right. earlier. And this is not even AI, right? Exactly. This is and I'll say, if it's worth having 100 books about the future, it's worth having a book about a scenario that has a 1% chance. So I don't need to make a strong claim about the probability of the scenario to make the book interesting and worth writing. And so I don't try to make a strong claim. I actually think it's pretty likely, but I don't need to convince you of that to tell you that this is a book worth reading. Oh, I read many books <laughs> with, uh, with, a, with a lower standard of worth, worth reading. It's just right. I found it highly informative. Right. I found it highly informative just because I learned a lot about social science because one of the nice aspects of the book is that you start every... There is a, something about physics and there is right. something about psychology right. and there's something about sociology and economics and so on and there are very right. nice introductions to what standards consensus science about this particular area tells us about the world today and history and from these assumptions what can we say right. about the M world. Um, so, so this was the principle of emulating a brain and then we need to emulate it in so, so, so some kind of intellectual breakthrough in brain science is needed in order to write down this functionality that you just described. Well, it's, it would be a breakthrough at the cell level. That is, yeah. you'll need to have good enough models of cells. Yeah. And I'll have to say, we now have pretty decent models of some kinds of cells, but you need it for all the kinds of cells. Mm -hmm. And so it's a approachable task in that sense. It's, mm -hmm. it's not beyond what the kind of thing we've already done. We just have to do a lot more of it. So this is more of a scaling thing. Well, we just have to do a lot more of the kind of thing we've already done instead of we don't necessarily need a new conceptual breakthrough to achieve this. No, we just have to continue doing, doing a lot we, more of what we have. Of what we do. And, and we do do that. I yes, mean, there, right. there's a, there are active right. fields of research that try to understand exactly this kind right. of questions. So we need a lot more computers, bigger, faster, cheaper. We need brain scans that are fine enough scale, cheap enough, fast enough, and we need enough models of cells. And mm -hmm. if we have those three things, then we can mm -hmm. do this, and we need those all to be cheap enough. Just spell them out again, there were three things. We need lots of cheap, fast, parallel computers, because we have to emulate a whole brain cheaply. Which That's are not brains, so, so, so right. hard, hardware, com computers in the narrow exactly. sense. Computers in the... Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Lots of hardware that can emulate mm -hmm. brains, and it's cheap and fast enough. Second, we need high enough resolution in spatial and chemical terms of brains, that is, we scans of brains, we have to see a brain in detail, a particular brain, where all the cells are, what type, connected to what. This we can do for very primitive creatures already, right? Some kind of worms or jellyfish. Well, we like can actually do it for, say, mice already. Mice? Uh, it, it's more about cost and resolution. So we, we, can, we can actually already scan pretty high resolution, but it's just very expensive at the moment. But well, honestly, of these three things, it's probably the thing that'll be ready first, is the scans. Mm -hmm. So uh, the third thing we need is models of the cells. And as I say, we already have decent models of many kinds of cells, but we need to have it for all of them. <laughs> so there are engineering and scientific breakthroughs that we need right. to achieve, but they are some sense... In sense they're more of the same. They are trends, directions in which we already are progressing. Right. And they're, just, and they're also just the same kind of thing we've already done. Yeah. There's not okay. necessarily Good. new kinds of things. So now I slowed you down for 45 <laughs> minutes no, no. just getting the basic assumptions of this, of this book right, and now we can open it on page right. one. Actually, we already dug in the middle already because the, the basic 
uh, scientific discipline that you do apply, economics, and the basic idea of supply and demand already destroys most of the scenario that I described, exactly for the fact that these ends are piss poor. <laughs> right, so there, there's the whole world of humans, seven billion, say, at the moment, maybe more at the time when this happens. Fleshy humans like you. Right, yeah. and, and these biological humans, all of a sudden the emulations become possible, and now the emulations quickly are cheaper than the humans, so pretty much all the humans lose their jobs. We assume the emulations will run, say, in the networks of Google or right. in the, some universities. Just data centers all over the place. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so the humans lose their jobs, but the emulations are all scans of humans, and so the emulation world will be eager for scans of the most productive humans. And so this emulation economy will select among humans for the best, at least in terms of this new world, and it will be very severe about that selection. That is, probably most M's are copies of the thousand most productive humans. And you could have millions and billions of copies of each one of those. There might be very rich humans who decide to enter the M world right. and can finance it themselves. Well, actually, most humans could probably finance a couple of copies of themselves as M's, but that would still be a small fraction of all the M's. So from the point of view of the M's, most M's are copies of the few thousand Spell this out, because we assume there are trillions of M's yes. <laughs> and only millions of humans, billions of humans. Right, exactly. So even if every human was allowed to enter the M world, just to be which, able to which play... Which they probably could. Which they could. With a few copies, they would not be in economic demand to make millions of copies of each one of those. Whereas right. the, in the M economy, it'll be willing to make billions of copies of the productive M's, because that's the high value. So in any case, the 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 billions of humans, even if they were all copied, or maybe just the rich uh, people who could afford this were copied, play basically no role in understanding the, the M economy. Role. Well, so humans start out owning all the capital in the economy. That is, they own As all... As we do the, now. Right, exactly. Yes. They own all the patents and all the stock and all the real estate. And for a while, they would probably maintain that dominance on capital. So basically, the biological humans are the rich capitalists, mm -hmm. and the M's are the proles, workers, uh, in mm -hmm. this scenario. The it's M's. like the time machine. They are the Morlocks that work behind the scenes right. and do all the work, and the humans enjoy, enjoy life like the alloy on the surface of the planet. Uh, right. Mm -hmm. uh, except uh, a key difference here is because the M's can run at different speeds, I figure out what the typical speed of an M is. Uh, it's about a thousand times human speed. That, that seems to be a very precise prediction I mean, why did you say 1,000 there? So I, I do understand why you didn't say 100ths. Because right. if the M was thinking slower than the human because of right. parallel hardware, then there would be no reason for the M economy. Or right. would there? Well, there would be less reason for it, right? Because then it would be better to have the fleshy the human, the biological human do the work than the emulated human. So my calculation of 1,000 is based on a trade-off of two considerations, which happen to meet in the middle. One consideration is that uh, jobs tend to change on the time scale of the doubling of the economy. That's true in our world today. Our economy doubles roughly every 15 years. Mm -hmm. And that's the time scale in which firms go bankrupt, new firms are created. If firms don't go bankrupt, the jobs are restructured and individual jobs are restructured because Edu the economy changes a lot on this time scale of a doubling. So, Education's become irrelevant. Uh, right, and you have to retrain yourself, you have to reskill for a new world every 15 years. 
And this is the tragedy right now for us biological right. humans, because exactly. just a few generations ago, we died faster than the economy could double. Right, exactly. So the education you took was relevant so for the rest of your life. a thousand years ago, when you trained at 20, your skills would still be available, pretty relevant at 80. Hardly anything would have changed. But today, you train at 20, and, and the world's very different at 80. And by the time you, you need to keep retraining, or else you're out of uh -huh. date, uh -huh. right? So that's a cost that the M world would be looking to avoid. And so it would probably rather that a typical M career fit within a doubling time. If, if, it, if it fits within a fraction of a doubling time, even mm -hmm. better. But it starts to pay substantial costs when the M career length is fits several doubling times. Because this is so hard to understand if you have this virtual reality video game view of the M world, that the M's still have to be trained, they have to they take have to an work, education, exactly. they have to work. And their job skills have to continue to be relevant. So we, we know that people today start out young and they're plastic and they're fluid and they're flexible and then over time they become more rigid and inflexible. And that limits the feasible career length of M's. And this might be true for M's as well because again yes. we're making minimal assumptions right. about about the quality of these right. and So let's just mines. make clear this as a summary. We didn't specify this. Uh, you might imagine that once we can make M's, now we can modify them lots of ways. We can go change everything. We can make them 100 times bigger, or combine one guy's music with another guy's athletics, etc. But we're really assuming initially that this is spaghetti code. We, we don't understand it very well. We can't make very many useful modifications. And so there's a limited number of things we can do to an M. We can turn it on, turn it off, erase it, we can run it fast, run it slow, we can copy it, and that's about it. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that limits the range of things we can do to these apps. Mm -hmm. But running fast or slow is one of our key options, and we have to decide how much. Now, when we run it twice as fast, we have to pay twice as much for computer hardware to support that. Mm -hmm. So uh, the amount of subjective time it takes to do any one task is about the same, and that's about the same cost. So uh, if it takes you five minutes to do something, whether we run you fast or slow, it's still going to cost about the same to have you experience about five minutes and do the task. But so it's, it's so hard to any person who is not you to get out of the intuition that hardware costs can't possibly be important here. Because hardware costs today are right. so cheap compared to everything else. So why, why can these trivial constraints suddenly become the dominating economic factor in the M world? So this is supply and demand. <laughs> Uh, so at the moment, we have a limited amount of labor and a lot of things to do that are very valuable. And so we pay the marginal worker the value of their marginal work, which is a lot. So we here educate right? computer scientists, exactly. so they are in high demand. That's in part because we have a limited number of people available. In the past, when there were a lot more people, the value of the marginal task fell. Uh, to a much smaller value. And there's no limit to how far it can small if the population is arbitrarily large. If we hold constant the amount of land and machines and other things, if we had a trillion people on Earth at the moment and we had the same amount of everything else, the marginal person would be worth a lot less. Right, because so let's, let's just take the example here of this university education. Instead of educating all these people, we take just our best student right. and then we take 10,000 copies of him or her. Right, and all the rest are not so valued. <laughs> then the rest of, and that means that nobody would finance the hardware costs. Or rather, exactly. I guess they themselves would finance the hardware Only if costs. They, well, they run out of their own financing eventually if they're not competitive. And then they will not be able to afford the hardware upgrade or the large scale. Hardware itself, yeah. So, so the, the key cooling. point is this is an economy where there's a lot of production to have, and it's a subsistence economy. So we know most production is targeted toward producing subsistence. There's no question about what, where most of the effort is going. In a subsistence economy, most of the effort is producing subsistence. That is, here, computer hardware, energy, cooling, communication lines, structural support, those sort of things. 
that's where all the resources are going because that's what it takes to subsist. And the economy is demanding those things. And if you can produce those things more cost effectively than other people, there's a big demand for you. But if you can't, you can subsidize yourself for a while on some subsidy pool. But if you run out of that pool, then you run out. And you would downgrade yourself to run on cheaper, slower hardware somewhere else. Right. So uh, it's interesting to note that because cost is proportional to speed, in fact, the speeds can probably go up to a million times faster than human speed and down to a billion times slower than human speed. And all across that whole range, cost is roughly linear in speed. That means there's a huge range to go when you get poor to just go slow. So in fact, when people get poor here, they don't starve to death and die. They just get slow. They can't afford the more expensive fast hardware, mm -hmm. and they just have to lower the clock rate, mm -hmm. which means they experience the world around them speeding up. And oh, so poverty will now be slowness. Yes. I need to cut in here because, again, I've, I've been having this conversation many times with many annoyed lunch partners, and, and this and many of the other things we're going to talk about is just uh, morally abhorrent to many people. And Being slow? Well, conceptualizing poverty, right? realizing that not everybody is equally qualified for jobs, all these things are, uh, seem to lead to some immediate psychological reaction in most people you talk to it about. Yeah. And, 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 and I, and even more you, have trained ourselves to talk about these things in a way that we avoid value signaling about We're this. doing a neutral analysis. We're trying to do a neutral analysis. Bef about as a preface to our evaluation, we of course are happy to do an evaluation eventually, but we want to make sure we get the analysis right first. But the very fact that we talk about this neutrally in many people leads to some kind of reaction which then leads them to reject not only the conversation but reject the model, right? The analysis. The anal yeah, and well, the hypothesis. How could the analysis be right if the analyzer is so emotionally neutral? Yes, yes. Surely Very the good. truth is never told by an emotionally neutral analyzer. The truth is only told by passionate yeah. uh, advocates for well, moral truth. But <laughs> so this misunderstanding may also appear because futurism is some kind of genre which is normally used not so much to analyze yes, it's the it's used future. to indirectly to preach about things. People use science fiction and futurism often as a way to preach morality indirectly about their world around them and not so much about the future. And that's a trope of science fiction and futurism that has a lot of truth to it. And resonates a lot. So preach, is there a nicer way of putting that? So now you're moralizing about this well, thing, but not about the M world. Uh, so, preaching so is a good thing sometimes. Preaching is a good thing. <laughs> Signaling value. So futurism right. normally is a genre where, that we use to, val to signal values right. about the present rather than analyze the future. Right. I mean, so for example, Wells' Eloy and Morlock yes. was an obvious metaphor for the class inequality in the world that Wells saw and his readers saw. Yes. And readers engaged that book and liked it in part because it was yes. preaching or moralizing or giving yeah. an allegory yeah. of yeah. their own world. Yeah. If, it was, if a future book was actually describing a strange world that didn't have a moral resonance with your world, most readers would not find it very interesting. Very good. Very nicely put. <laughs> that being said, we want to continue actually analyzing the future in a neutral way. Right. And, and as then you we let's make sure we get to an evaluation. Yes. Right. At the end of that, it's right. open to everybody to evaluate this. Well, also before we go there, what we try to do in describing this future will probably look strange or alien and maybe abhorrent to somebody today in the same way, I guess, that the similar experience would be to somebody who lived in the Middle Ages or certainly in a, right. a hunter-gatherer society. 
So obviously in the Middle Ages, people were used to living in a subsistence world. Mm -hmm. They were used to the idea that if you couldn't bring in enough food, uh, you either starved or somebody supported you and had less food themselves. Mm -hmm. um, I think we, we, have, we do have an abhorrence, correctly so, for the idea of people around us starving to death. Yeah. But we, we, we don't like that, of course. And so if we are presented with the image of our world suddenly transitioning to a world of subsistence, and suddenly many of us starving, that is an immediately horrifying image to many of us. Yep. Uh, I actually think the humans in this world will do okay, and we can talk about that, in the sense that uh, they will be on average pretty rich, and they won't be starving to death, they just won't be in the center of this new world. The M's will be, but the M's won't be starving to death. The M's will just not exist, or exist if there's a demand for them. See, and that's a subtler variation. It's yep. not that they are created and then die of starvation because there's no demand, there's a, small, there's a set of initial M's, and then the, the M market economy is saying, which of them should we make more copies of? Mm -hmm. It's going to this person saying, that person seems to be very productive. Let's make more copies of that person. And the other person is saying, sorry, we're not interested in investing in you. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean that person starves to death. That means that person doesn't have more copies. That person can continue in their original mode, but they aren't, there's no demand for more of them. Right. So, so the M economy is making more of the ones it has a demand for, which is... And each one of those it has a demand for, they're existing and they're being fed and they're having a meaningful life and a job. Uh, but, you know, the economy is selecting for mm -hmm. the ones that are productive. Mm -hmm. Good. So this was the supply and demand view that informs us that the M's will try to price each other out of the market with whatever skill they have. And if you need a new operating system to be written, then you can just talk to the... Uh, Linus Torvalds M and say, please make a million Copy copies. Copy number one million yes. five hundred thousand yep. because there's and, a lot of them. And then Linus and and if you have the money for it, you can speed up Linus to a right. thousand times normal speed, and then he will write a new Linux kernel for you in no time, and the uh, right. coordination problem, software version and control will be no problem. Exactly, and, and that's why the M world is so productive in part, not just because they're on computer hardware that's cheap, but because the typical emulation is of a quality similar to our Nobel Prize winners, Olympic gold medalists, billionaires, heads of state. They're that quality on average, and they know it. That's the typical emulation. It's that because good at their otherwise, job. Because otherwise they wouldn't have been copied. Exactly. Again, there might be other people. There might be people like you and me or, or our listeners, but they right. may just exist in a single copy that runs at very slow right. speeds and maybe just enjoys life in a virtual environment pretending they are a dragon. Right, so most of these are working most of the time. They, they are in a mode where they are working most of the hours of the week because it's a competitive world. So you and I know many people in professional lives who do similarly, right? They yeah. work a lot of hours a week because they're in a competitive world that kind of demands that. Reading your book changed my, <laughs> my mode of interaction with people because sometimes I tell people that you would do very well in the end world. <laughs> right. I, I just was at a party with lots of people who win competitive programming contests, for instance. Right. They are highly focused, right. extremely driven workaholics. Right. It's, and it's important to look at those people and say, are those lives worth living? Yes. <laughs> because th there are drawbacks, and you and mine, I might not want to be one of them. But mm -hmm. I think overall, I have to say, their lives look like they're worth living. They are oh, enjoying yes. their lives. They yeah. find their lives yeah. meaningful. Yeah. And so I say, to the, I say the M's would similarly enjoy their lives and find their lives meaning in that same way. They are working really hard, but they want to work really hard. That's what they're selected for, and they're really good at it. And that's the kind of creature that they are. And this is maybe the strongest, this is the psychology part. That's the, that's the, that's the uh, area where my initial prediction is the most wrong. Because uh, if you just think about living in virtual reality, 
I think the immediate idea would be that people would uh, be really happy and lazy and the difficulty would be to find meaning. Right. But the opposite is true. Uh, right. Now, there's this generic fact that almost everybody presented with any strange world wonders how those people find meaning. <laughs> so, so just in general, each of us does find meaning in our world typically. Mm -hmm. But if we are presented with most any world of, of people far away in the world or back in history mm -hmm. or some strange future, most people just say, well, how do those people find meaning? Because we mostly can't imagine finding meaning in a world that isn't our world. But in fact, most people in history have found meaning in their world. Or didn't and even, or didn't have the money to ask the question. I guess most people in the middle, in the Middle Ages didn't really think about this. But I think they still, they had meaning. They had meaning, oh yes. They just yeah. didn't think about yeah. no. the question of whether they had meaning. They were not sure whether they were happy, I guess. That's a question they didn't find as interesting. They didn't find that as interesting, no. actually, that, that, and that's true. And, but they definitely found meaning in their life. Mm -hmm. And, and I sort of think the M's will find meaning. Mm -hmm. And you could also ask whether they'll be as happy in the sense of maybe they won't ask that question either. Oh, about but they are probably workaholics. I and mean, the workaholics right, exactly. I know seem to be quite content with working. Well, they find meaning in it. They grouse about it sometimes. Mm -hmm. And sometimes mm -hmm. they seem to be a little stressed and a little anxious. But overall, so, I'd say their lives have meaning. So can we quickly describe work life? So, so uh, most jobs would be office jobs. Most jobs are office jobs. They might as well sit in a virtual reality office. Uh, and because it's cheap, and then they have breaks. So we are we have a huge literature on breaks at work for humans, and we see that it's important for people to have a break once an hour, a break several times a day, a break in the evening, a break on the weekends, vacations periodically per year. And those are important. And when you for say people. important, because you're an economist, you mean for productivity. For productivity, yes. it's important, yeah. and it's important that you not work too many hours a week. In fact, we we have data for most workers that working, say. 60 hours a week like makes you less productive mm -hmm. <laughs> over an extended period mm -hmm. than working mm -hmm. less. And so M's would therefore work as many hours a week as is maximally productive, which is a lot less than the maximum. And similarly, they'd have breaks all the time. Mm -hmm. And they would have corner offices because that's another commodity. Right, Everybody would have a nice, right, exactly. nice office with a breathtaking, right. but not too distracting view. Right, not too distracting, but just nice enough to, to be comfortable in. Yeah. I also actually calculate the productivity difference between the best M and the second best M because uh -huh. that tells you how much slack the best guy has to be not quite maximally productive. Would they want that? Well, they would have the option. Okay. The key thing is, because mm -hmm. you, you wonder if there's such an intense competition, maybe you're pushed right to the edge and there's no margin at all to be even slightly lazy. Mm -hmm. But I can say, no, the best person has the margin of being better than the second best person. And we can actually calculate the typical long normal distribution of ability and calculate the typical difference between the best and second best. And I say... Yeah, I guess there you're sort of losing me because I'm not an economist. <laughs> right? So these okay. parts seem to okay. be... Okay, but I can just tell you, they have a slack of about 6%. 6%. They yeah. can waste 6% of the day and still be okay. <laughs> yeah, but the, yeah, this, this seems to be dressing up a, a, a highly contingent scenario in quantitative terms that... Where I, no, think I think it's a robust number, but... You think it's a robust we'd number? We'd have to go okay. into the details. Hmm? Now, as long as we're talking about things that, that bother people, yep. another variation is... Um, Typically, say you start a work day, you're refreshed, you've rested all night, you're productive for eight, maybe 12 hours, and then you need to rest again, right? I, I still need more detail here. I wake up, my virtual mind has enjoyed some kind of sleep, right? which since it's just a simulation Not just sleep, of sleep, other kinds of rest. You watch TV, you ch chatted with friends, you, you, you just backed off and relaxed a bit. Most of us need that. Because the simulated mind is just a simulation of a right, human exactly. brain that likes these kinds of things, it we needs assume. Them. That we assume that it needs that as well. For productivity, it needs them. And so M's will 
take a break in the evening, chat a bit, socialize, watch TV, sleep. I wake up intellectually rested. Ready and ready for the day. I may have some kind of fake breakfast experience or not, who knows. Right, or a fake conversation, water cooler, chat, whatever it takes to get yeah. you ready for the day. Because my M does not need food or coffee. No, but it might need the ritual of it food. It might need the ritual of food. Right. And then I will teleport to my office. Right. And then yeah. you're ready to be productive for 8 to 12 hours, mm -hmm. after which you'll need to rest again. Mm -hmm. Now, so that's the ratio of the 24 hours uh, is a factor of two or three that you have to spay extra for rest. Mm -hmm. Now, if you make several copies at the beginning of the workday. Of myself? Yes. And have them all work during the workday and have, at the end of the workday, end all but one, and have only one go on to the next day. So, yeah, thank you for taking <laughs> this up, because this is, this is the one that my daughters are most bothered by. Right, okay. Because this is the scenario I tell them, and yes. I, I, don't, I use a specific uh, uh, a terrible task, namely grading exams, the worst right. thing I know in my professional right. life. So you make so a copy every, to grade every, exams? I, I think this sounds great. Let's just spell it out. Twice a year, I have to grade 200 exams. It's the most, it's the worst part of right. my work life I know. So at one o'clock, some Thursday afternoon, I might just make 200 copies of myself. Each of them grades one exam that takes right. 15 minutes. And it's then done. And then the exams are graded. And now the terrible thing happens. Well, is it terrible is the question we're going yeah, to now yeah, ask. Exactly. <laughs> okay. Now, Remember, we, we, it's very cheap to make things slow. So in principle, each of these 50-minute tasks could be slowed down by a factor of a billion and all the copies could be saved, except why bother? Because now they'll experience the, the world going a billion times slower and that's not very interesting life, perhaps. Or we might just erase those copies. Now, so there's a trade-off here on several margins. First of all, uh, on the gain, this is a factor of two or three more productive, remember? We don't have to spend the other rest of the day resting up. This is full work. Oh, it, for me it's even better because I don't have to grade 200 exams. I find this well, you do. annoying. <laughs> and, well, the one surviving copy of me... Doesn't remember doing it. Can we give me numbers? So there's right. Tor 1 and there's right. Tor 2 up to Tor 200. Right. In parallel, those 200 copies will grade one exam each. Right. And they will each dislike grading just like you do. Yes. But then they'll be over. But you won't remember those things. Now, so from the point of view of pleasant memory, uh, there's a gain here is that you don't have to remember the unpleasant task of grading. I remember grading one of them. Right. And then I collect for right. tour one who... Right. Now, we, uh, there's disadvantages here. Yes. One disadvantage is to get good at a job, you need to have remembered doing it. So you'll need to remember doing a lot of unpleasant things just to have gotten good enough at them so that now you can do them well. That makes sense for research, right? The right. other unpleasant part of my work is spending 200 hours right. thinking about you problems needed, and none of them work. But you but needed this to is all important. have experience grading yes. to get good yes. at grading. So there will have been some part of your life that you remember getting good at grading. That will exactly. be part of your memory. Yes. Yes. But then after that, that, you can you can be past. I'm past 50, no <laughs> professor increases in Right, at that point you're, you're done at grading, you don't yes. need to remember this, yes. right? So, uh, but that's a trade-off. To the extent you need to remember, you need to learn from doing a job, you'll have to remember sure. the experience of doing a job. Now, I make the analogy of a party today, where if you took a drug at the beginning of a party, where it means you won't remember that party the next day or ever after. So imagine you take the this- The drug could be alcohol. For example, yeah. right. Mm -hmm. In quanti insufficient yes. quantities. Yes. Oh, we are in Scandinavia. So <laughs> right, okay. So the, the key point is, now you are in this mode of a person at a party knowing that you won't remember this party tomorrow or the next day. 
That's who you are at this party. Mm -hmm. You are a creature who won't be remembered. Mm -hmm. Now, mm -hmm. toward the end of this party, you could say to yourself, I'm about to die. That, that person tomorrow, that's not me, because he won't remember these things, thoughts I'm having right now, these feelings I'm having right now. He can't identify with me right now. He's not me. You could take that attitude, or you could take the attitude that Be I will really, go on. I'm not really dying. I'm just being replaced by the save point at 6 o'clock when I took well, the drug. Uh, yeah, I, I'm I will go on. I just won't remember this part of what I did. Right. Because we're already used to there's parts of our past we don't remember. Right. We don't remember everything that happened in our childhood, mm -hmm. but we still think of that as me. I was still a child, mm -hmm. even if I don't remember all of that, right? So that's another attitude we have. We have these two available attitudes about the end of party me. I'm a new creature about to die, I hate this. Mm -hmm. Or I will continue on, I just won't remember everything. Mm -hmm. That was a choice I made. I don't need to remember everything. Mm -hmm. So M's who make these short-term copies, who do the 15 minutes of grading, they have these same two choices. They could say, I'm a new creature, was created with a 15-minute life, with a crappy job, no leisure, I hate this, how did I get myself into this? Or they could say, I will go on, I just won't remember this unpleasant thing that I didn't want to remember. And know that the original tour one will actually continue get, on get and, and paid be fine. for this and have right. nice memories, right. not including grading this damn exam. I mean, so already today you should ask yourself, if it's the middle of the workday and you're working, why are you working for that guy later today who gets to enjoy leisure? I mean, he's not you, is he? I mean, he's some other guy. You're working now for that other guy, and he's taking advantage of you. Mm -hmm. Why let him take advantage of you? Why not rebel and say, I deserve leisure right now. I should get to walk out of the office and go stand in the park because I'm me now, and I should get to enjoy my life. Why should I work today for that guy later today? But of course, we don't say that because we identify with this other person later today as yes. ourselves. Yes. Oh, yeah. And the copies will identify strongly with the original right. because right. much well, stronger than twins. That's a choice they have. Now, the claim is that the, they will typically make the choice to identify. And the, I make that claim on the mere basis that that helps them get along in this world. Clearly, when they don't get along, there's a lot of conflict, and it's much harder for them to be productive. Right, because you, you describe these two mindsets we can have with respect to copying and then ending. Right. And one of the mindsets would be highly adaptive in the exactly. M world. Exactly. It helps you get along and work and yeah. make do things, and the other one is much harder to manage. And the other mindset would not. And so this competitive world selects for the get-along attitude. Again, again, so this is not a question <laughs> about whether the M world is for everybody. It's right. certainly not for everybody, but it's for people with a very specific... Uh, work attitude, they right. have to like but, working, they have to be... But notice that your world is like this too and yes. most worlds humans have ever lived in. That is, we are living in a different work world than our ancestors lived in and many of our, most of our ancestors wouldn't like some key aspects of our work world. And they wouldn't understand why we work at all, for instance. Well, not only why we work, but why we put up with so much domination and ordering and yeah. ranking. Yeah. Uh, most of our ancestors wouldn't have put up with the level of that that we put up with. They would, as a matter of pride, think that that was just beneath them to put up with the level of that we put up with in our world. But can, we have can, adapted to this world. Can we, we insert the Hansonian forager-farmer dichotomy here? So this sure. is something that you also might be famous for. Uh, so um, my one-factor model of history <laughs> over the last you know, 100,000 years is that we were once foragers, and as foragers, we lived in harmony with nature. That is, when we did what felt natural, it was roughly the right thing to do. Harmony with nature means getting killed in entertaining well, but, ways. But it still but meant 
when we followed our instincts, it was roughly the right thing. We, we didn't need to overwhelm, our, overcome our interests very, with very much conscious thought. Oh, I, I see, because our psychology has evolved to exactly that kind right, of right. Uh, adaptive environment. Our, our instincts mm -hmm. were roughly matched to our environment. Mm -hmm. And so things just worked. This is the time of hunter-gatherers, right. up to 30,000, maybe right. even... 10,000 oh, years ago, maybe, in yeah, that range, years. right? Mm -hmm. Okay. But we were culturally plastic. And that allowed us to change our values and our behaviors and, and move to a wide range of environments. And it particularly allowed us to become farmers. So once farming was possible, the optimal behavior as farmers was really quite different from foragers. Farmers have to put up with war and domination and ranking, slavery, being cruel to animals, uh, not having much travel, not having as much leisure, more less variety of behavior, less con you know, less and art. See, and see, now this sounds terrible to anybody who lives in a forager world. If, if right. I told so somebody, so foragers didn't like the farming life, and they mm -hmm. often resisted for quite a long time before being forced to adopt a farming life, often due to competitive pressures from neighbors mm -hmm. who had adopted farming and mm -hmm. then were pressing in on them. So uh, farming life, farmers lived less long. They had less nutritional variety. They had more disease. Uh, they had less free time. It was in many ways a worse life. How could we? Yeah. Right? So why would they choose that? Yeah. Of course, yeah. nobody had a committee meeting to decide this. Right. It was just a local choice each local group made, and they made it in competitive pressures, and that was just another effect their choices. And you can tie this to psychology, even to political allegiance, right? You have this idea that one of these worlds is much more conservative than the other, and surprisingly... Well, well, well right. So, so the story here is that humans develop cultural pressures to make themselves be farmers. More conformity pressures, later religious pressures, uh, lots of self-control. Farmers are really proud of their self-control, and they need self-control in order to make themselves acts in ways that are different from what's natural to foragers. Because you have to plant and wait and wait and well, wait. Well, you have to plant, you have to resist the temptation to be lazier, to, to run away from a battlefield, right. mm -hmm. to, you know, to, to say F you to your king. Mm -hmm. These are all mm -hmm. things that foragers would be tempted to do mm -hmm. that a farmer shouldn't do, and mm -hmm. farmers have social pressures to get them to act in the new farmer ways. And we succeeded in creating enough cultural pressures to make people act like farmers. Or we selected right? for people who... Exactly. Mm -hmm. And then in the last few hundred years, we've had this getting rich thing. And the key point is that... Oh, so, so it's, it's forager, farming, industrial revolution. But industrials are foragers in many ways, is the key point. So the thing that made us farmers in one way was poverty. So take the example of a young woman thinking of having a child out of wedlock, a love child. Mm -hmm. Now, for a for forager, that was just a really common thing. It's not a problem, mm -hmm. okay? The, the groups would take care of it, et cetera. It just happened. Now, for a farmer, the culture said, no, no, no. If you have a child out of wedlock and we see that, you and your child may die. And, and this wasn't an idle threat. They would see examples of this sort of thing around them to be remind them that this was not an idle threat. And, and there would that be would scare them. There would be religious institutions that enforce these use well, points. Right, it was enforced in part through poverty, <laughs> through the fact that other people would shame you oh. and run away from you, etc. The threat that you would die <laughs> was a real threat if mm -hmm. you violated the religious cultural rules of the society around you. But not because you were killed by a priest, but, but, you, but because you starved. Right, because yeah. people you mm -hmm. know, wouldn't marry you, mm -hmm. wouldn't uh, do business with you, uh, etc. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, shame you out of the, kick you out of the town, whatever it is, right? So, but in our world today, uh, when same religious groups or cultures say, don't have a child out of wedlock, the young woman looks around her and says, I see other women, and they have children out of wedlock, mm -hmm. and they seem mm -hmm. to be doing okay, mm -hmm. and I want to do that. And so, that cultural pressure is just much less threatening or, or, or credible. And so, today, when we're rich, we more look inside ourselves and say, what do I want? 
-hmm. and we're rich enough to just do it mm -hmm. often. And that's the drifting back to forager attitudes as we've gotten rich. And so I claim this explains most of the major cultural trends in the last few hundred years. Pro-democracy, lower fertility, lower religion, more travel, more leisure, more art. Uh, Focus on inequality or inequality. Less slavery, as, yeah, less more concern about inequality, yeah. mm -hmm. um, more product variety and concerns about that, uh, individual expressiveness, signaling. Most of these major trends are understood as going back to being like foragers. Huh. In, except at work. Now, work attitudes and behaviors are just a separate category. It's the goose that lays the golden egg and we don't mess with that so much. So we're kind of schizoid. At work, we're kind of hyper farmers, but outside oh. of work, we're, we're, we've gone back to being Certainly foragers. Certainly in some jobs, we are, we are farmers. And in our leisure time, we are foragers. And then to get this back to the M economy, then we are back at right. a Malthusian so, dystopia. Right. So many people looking at the future in that initial story you told like to imagine a future like Star Trek or the culture world where we get rich and richer and we have more and more free time and more and more freedom and more and more self-expression and focus on what we enjoy. And that's a science fiction future many people like to think about. I do. And it is a straightforward projection of recent trends over the last few centuries. But there's no guarantee that that actually continues that mm -hmm. trend in that direction. So the age of M is a concrete scenario where that trend is reversed. The M's themselves are now poor again, and they're no longer forager attitude style creatures. They revert to something more like a farmer style in the sense that they have strong cultural pressures to get them to act in the ways that is appropriate for their world. Can you list the uh, sort of median psychological profile of the M? It's hardworking, honest. Workaholic, uh, loyal to their clan and to their community, uh, you know, respectful of work and and somewhat disrespectful of, of lazy, mm -hmm. um, you know, and uh, they, they are proud of their achievement at work. Mm -hmm. They get a lot more meaning out of work mm -hmm. than the typical person today. Mm -hmm. um, Conservative. And so they are going to be religious. Probably. Religious. Mm -hmm. uh, that is, religion is functional in our society in helping people uh, commit themselves to uh, patterns of behavior that didn't feel natural to foragers, to make them feel part of a community, to get that community support for those behaviors. Okay, right. So to, just to tie this back to the thing that, that my, my daughters are worried about, it would be easy for them to invent a religion where it would be religiously adaptive to end after grading exams. There could be an, an entire sure. ritual tied to that, and that religion would help you with this a priori, right. different so psychological process. a bunch process. of standard things you're supposed to do, and maybe at the moment you're supposed to do it, you feel a little queasy about it, mm -hmm. but then your shame of betraying your community or religion would push you to, to go through mm -hmm. with it. Mm -hmm. In the same way that a soldier mm -hmm. who was religious might committed to fighting the battle where at the moment they wanted to run away. Mm -hmm. They would, instead of running away, they would be ashamed of running away, wanting to run away and, and all the more determined to march into the battle. So it seems Emmons would have pretty good... Um, a pretty precise impression of themselves as well because they would know themselves they would know, that, that's what I want do. to say right because for, for instance one of the reasons why I don't think I would have a chance in the M economy is that that I know that if I farmed out some task to a copy of myself then the copy of myself would <laughs> never actually 
get right, this so, done so because, people think because about I don't trust myself. M's would very quickly find out what happens when they assign a copy to do something and then they are the copy assigned to do it and do I do it? Yeah. And whatever, and then if they find that a certain package of an assignment doesn't work because they, they don't actually do it, they will search in the space of packages that work and they mm -hmm. will find whatever works mm -hmm. as a package of, okay, you do this and then you get this much leader mm -hmm. and you know that's the package. Mm -hmm. Are you okay with that? And they find whatever package works. So they would quickly find whatever works, but the ones who whose packages that work are more productive will win in the competition among M's for being the most productive M's. So they, they, um, M's won't have children initially in the way we have children in the sense of a, a mother and a father producing a combination of the two of them. They will mostly reproduce by making copies, but uh, because they have a limited career length, they need to keep restarting earlier copies and raising them as children to be trained and then become a worker adult. So now what you have is you raising younger versions of yourself and having oh, older versions of yourself so, around. So there's some kind of computer fridge where there's a 13-year-old version of me. Or 5-year-old. Or a 5-year-old version of me. Right, and waiting I around to be restarted. So, and so there's possibly entire uh, psychological in, uh, right. institutes uh, devoted to studying you, five-year-old me. Right. Oh, right. That makes sense because there well, are, if I'm successful, millions of me. Right. So you may well get married, but when you think about marrying Susan, or I don't know who your wife's name is, um, you will know that you will have seen millions of other marriages between you and Susan and have a lot of statistics on how well that goes. There are you, TV shows about that. <laughs> right. You will not be blindsided about how your marriage will go. Whatever main options you have, they will have been tried many times over and over again, and you will roughly know how they play out. There will be literature about that, TV right. shows so you'll about know that. What happens when you try to be an actor? What happens when you try to be an athlete? What happens when you try to be a computer programmer? You will have seen your versions of yourself try those things, and you'll have a rough idea how that plays out. Those won't be mysteries. <laughs> and then you will have a child's version of yourself to help raise, and you will know all the different attempts that makes, older makes versions of yourself have to raise younger versions of yourself, and no sense. what strategies okay. they've tried and what's worked. Hmm? You will be part of, it's like being part of a franchise, like McDonald's or something, right? You're not all on your own inventing what the dishes should be and how to run it. You've got this whole franchise there to help you work right, so this not, place okay. out. Not, not only are there millions of copies of, of a successful M, like let's just pretend right. that I am a successful M, right. there would be millions of copies of me, there would be millions of copies that have branched off from me at various points. So there will right. be... Right, try different things and you'll see all that statistics. Some of them will have my education, others won't. There will be maybe some of them that right. actually manage to play blues guitar really well and they will be successful now, to complicate this a little, what will actually happen is they will copy teams. So today, we aren't so much productive as individuals, we're productive as parts of teams. Now mm -hmm. that's a problem in our society because teams come and go and reformed, and so our individual productivity actually varies a lot in unpredictable ways because our teams vary. We, we mm -hmm. know that you got great you know, grades in school, et cetera, but we don't know when we put you on this team at our firm how well you work on that team. Oh, but and it turns out that I, in connection with Bob and Susan, right, make a good team, the MWR will just copy that whole team. A million times. Yes. Mm -hmm. And so what will often, more often be copied in the M world is whole teams that work well together. And then you might take younger versions of those whole teams and train them up together to become teams together. And you'll have that whole experience. And so instead of you being a unit made as copies, they'll be the teams made as copies. And we all have the same friends or versions of the same friends. Every tour will know a Susan and a Bob. Right. And we will meet after work on Friday so night. So when you and your teammates interact, you'll know in the background that there's a thousand or a million other copies of that team out there. And they're looking at statistics of all the teams. So if you do something really weird in this team, that will have an impact on all the other copies of your team. They'll all, if you just throw a hissy fit, 
not only will these people oh think God. a little less of you, all the other copies of you, and that'll, that'll restrain you a little bit. You will feel a little conformity pressure. No, you don't want to do that to all of your other teammates. Because I'm responsible to many, many right. copies of exactly. myself exactly. and their, and their status. Exactly. Anything you do will be reflected in all the rest of them. So, so when you, so you've obsessed about these kinds of questions many, many years. When you find this new interesting detail, which must have been new to you as well, right. when you started thinking about this. Exactly. What do you do to, to sort of learn about this? Sit down and think? Well, so um, I had a book whose scope was a whole civilization. Mm -hmm. And I had thought about some parts of the civilization, and I had written sections on that. And then I looked, and I said, well, what's missing here? Mm -hmm. And I said, oh, well, say there's no labor economics, or there's no cultural economics, mm -hmm. or there's no mating. Mm -hmm. And I said, I need to have a section on that. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, what do I know about that? Mm -hmm. And so the first thing is to go read up the basics of that, if I don't know it, in order to have the basic theory of how that thing works, and then I have to try to apply it. So I just did this exercise of continuing going to a new area that I hadn't covered and saying, what do, what's the basic we know about this area? And now, what is the most basic things we know about that predict for this world? I just mm -hmm. iterate that until mm -hmm. I ran out of time. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. So it's also an opportunity to familiar, familiarize yourself with well, many, many, you many... If uh, you're going to describe a whole civilization, you'll need to lo know about a lot of aspects of a civilization. You need the first, the, you need the introductory course to many, many disciplines. Exactly. Yeah. And that's a nice... And if you happen to be a polymath type who mm -hmm. finds it hard to focus and uh -huh. the world doesn't reward that typically, exactly. this is a way to get more of a reward from that because you can't do this sort of task unless you actually know a lot about a lot of different things. Even for a reader is good. Like, like me, I also have difficulty right. focusing, but, but getting this, this sort of first approximation on this civilization from many, many different perspectives it's just uh, highly instructive, highly informative. Right, so the, the basic structure in each thing, say mating, is to say, well, what's my theory of mating in our world? <laughs> mm -hmm. What's my general theory of mating that mm -hmm. applies to all the different worlds we've ever seen? Mm -hmm. And now, what does that theory apply? Mm -hmm. What does it say about this new world mm -hmm. when applied? So, yeah, let's go there. Uh, this is, uh, so it's virtual reality. Everybody looks like Brad Pitt or, or right. uh, Wonder Woman. Right, so, so for mating, uh, physical appearance is easy to achieve. Mm -hmm. Everybody's beautiful. Everybody's beautiful. Everybody if they want. looks beautiful, feels beautiful, sounds beautiful. Uh, it's all great, right? Mm -hmm. Now, of course, people are picky. Mm -hmm. So being physically beautiful won't be enough mm -hmm. because uh, that's too easy to get. Mm -hmm. That's right? the baseline. Right? And so you'll ask, well, what will they be picky about? What will be hard to get? And so, of course, now your mind isn't easy to make beautiful in the sense of being articulate or witty or clever. And so there'll be a premium on that. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it will be hard to be as clever or witty or, or charismatic or charming as, as everybody else. Mm -hmm. And that will be a difference that they will notice and see between each other. I mean, they'll try to have automated aids to make them clever and charming, but they won't work as well for some as others. Mm -hmm. And so they will be those differences. And then we already just have a lot of standard data about cross, across all the history of civilizations we've ever seen, what people tend to prefer in mates. And so there's just a rough summary uh, that I found in the literature and I drew on. So I said, well, apparently in, um, men have a preference for women who are give signs of fertility. Mm -hmm. And that has to do with signs of youth, mm -hmm. signs of uh, compassion and empathy toward children, which are similarly empathy toward other things. And of course, all the other signs of intelligence and, and strength, etc. But so fertility doesn't make sense here because we can't have reproductive sex oh, in the oh, end right, world. Right. But my psychology doesn't, doesn't know that. that. Okay, very good. Right. <laughs> right. And, and, and the second part, youth. No, yeah, youth. And well, beauty. So youth is a sign of fertility. 
fine. And so, so I assume they're virtual avatars to be beautiful, healthy. Right, but there are psychological signs of fertility. Oh. So, so uh, we often find attractive a, a youthful spontaneity and mm -hmm. playfulness mm -hmm. that we might not see in an older personality, mm -hmm. and men find that attractive in women mm -hmm. as a sign of youth, which is mm -hmm. a sign of fertility. And similarly, in the literature, it says that women are especially interested in signs of status and resources in the men. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, they, they want not just any man, but a man who's respected by others, liked by others, a man who is, is uh, powerful, you know, other signs of status. And those are also things I would predict here. Mm -hmm. Those are just, of course, everybody likes all those things. It's just a matter of emphasis. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so, and they could all be wrong, but historically right. they seem but to be not. The wrong. easy thing to do is again, this is just my generic method. Right. I, I I don't have the resources to to question every literature. The mm -hmm. first status is just go read the literature and say what's their standard conclusion, and then just apply. It. I would have to have a strong reason to question a literature mm -hmm. to do anything mm -hmm. else. So Unless you were more interested in signaling about the, for example, right, about the present than predicting the future. Mm -hmm. Right. So that's my weak prediction here. Mm -hmm. uh, now, I mean, there's a. So there's an interesting question about sexuality, mm -hmm. which is somewhat different than attraction. So pair bonding is pretty robust. That is, people do like over a lifetime to have pair bonds, friends. Serial pair bonds. Right. Serial, it, it doesn't yeah. have to be monogamy for life, mm -hmm. but almost all of our ancestors had pair bonds, mm -hmm. at least that lasted for several years. Mm -hmm. And so that's a robust thing to predict. I could have predicted pair bonds. Sexuality is somewhat different yeah. in the sense that we have seen places where sex is more versus less important. Mm -hmm. And sex has been varied a lot across cultures. Mm -hmm. But I, I got to predict there'll be some demand for sex. Mm -hmm. uh, there's an open question how closely that would be tied to the pair bonds. Uh, but there's also, say, the possibility perhaps of you know, some drugs that suppress sexuality. Mm -hmm. So, for example, we have the history of eunuchs. Mm -hmm. And we can say, you know, what do eunuchs tell us about okay. the possibility that M's could be less sexual? Because you might, you might say, hey, sex takes a lot of time and energy, distracts you from work. If there's a way to turn a knob to make you less sexual, maybe the M world would do that. Because there are examples like Unix where we actually right. have done this, where oh, societies right. have chosen yes. this. Mm -hmm. And so Unix are famously less sexual, but they're not zero. Mm -hmm. so, so actually, Unix are actually pretty sexual. Mm -hmm. So that, I think, sets a bound saying the Ms are going to be pretty sexual, even if they use oh, drugs okay. they didn't like they Unix. Use. I see. Mm -hmm. But and Unix were actually mm -hmm. had a lot of sex. Mm -hmm. So um, honestly, that well, tells you the Ms will too. Yeah. Right, right. right. But the point is, it's deeply embedded in our psychology and our habits. So I got to think the Ms will do it. Now, one interesting question about sexuality, especially in the M world, is that biology so far in history has guaranteed a near equal number of men and women. And most people, though not all, are looking for sex with an opposite sex, you know, male-female partner. But the M world is not guaranteed at all to produce an equal number of men and women. So that mm -hmm. creates a novel problem for the M world. Mm -hmm. I don't know which direction it will go. It might be more men than women or more women than men. There, I can see arguments either way. But it's very unlikely to be very exactly evenly divided. It might be a ratio of 4 to 1 or 20 to 1. Okay. Right? Would, okay. Okay. Because, so even though we can't really see which uh, psychological profile will be most adaptive and... Well, it's likely one of them will be. But one of them probably will be because right. the other thing would be uh, a... Very strange the coincidence, coincidence right, yeah. that they happen okay. to be exactly Good. right. So that means, like, what happens when there's a ratio of 4 to 1 or 21 across genders? How do they have pair bonds across genders? Mm -hmm. So either they become asexual mm -hmm. or they become homosexual mm -hmm. or they have to find or they become, say, polygamous or polygamous mm -hmm. or they have some other clever options. So mm -hmm. 
One clever option is a fast slow pair bond where they run at different speeds. Oh, to, to ameliorate the, uh, the right, difference exactly. in frequency. Okay. Exactly. Ah. So, so for example, you could have a, a, a four to one pair bond where uh, if you and I are partners, I see you once a day and you see me four times a day. Oh, but this is even <laughs> fictionalized in a recent movie, right? Where, where there is, where there is, a, where there is a, a virtual partner, I think, in a phone. Is it called Her? Yes, the movie was Her. And, and, and she has many partners. She has 20,000 partners. <laughs> right, or something, or something like that. Yes. Right, so, I mean, this is kind of interesting. Uh, but so, if we have this four to one ratio, uh, what will happen now that you see me four times a day, but now over my lifetime, uh, you will have four people of me over your lifetime, mm -hmm. you see. And so mm -hmm. I might feel odd about the fact that I am a, a devoted to you four times as much as you're mm -hmm. devoted to me. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, th these are interesting. Yeah, these are interesting, yes. But I mean, so these are the kind of details that you get to try to think this through. Mm -hmm. You start with the general idea, they probably want pair bonds, they probably want male-female sexual mm -hmm. partners mostly, but mm -hmm. how do they accommodate mm -hmm. these, these things that are getting in the way? And navigating these things, of course, and sort of encourages you to step across some cultural or political taboos and, and this is a um, difficult exercise, I guess. Right, well, so certainly... To, to deprogram yourself from the expectations of your I audience. mean, so this is part of futurism as, as wishful thinking, in a sense, or, mm -hmm. or futurism as projecting our values. Okay. Many people have seen the change in behavior over the last few centuries as a moral discovery, wherein we've discovered that our ways are better than the past, and they hope to see a future where those trends continue. And this book is in part saying, well, many of the choices that we make different from our ancestors are less due to moral discovery than our having a different context from them. So if the future context is different, our descendants may not continue with our moral trends. They may go a different direction. So for example, many people are happy and eager that our, we are having weaker gender roles, although stronger gender personalities actually, and that we are allowing more freedom and range of gender relationships. And most of us would view that as moral progress of the highest moral order. Moral progress and a discovery that we want or expect to be permanent. Right. Uh, but it need not be permanent. Mm -hmm. And it need not be permanent because of evil. Mm -hmm. It could be, you know, impermanent because instead of moral progress, other factors are more causing these changes. Mm -hmm. And those factors can switch. Mm -hmm. Let me, um, so, so, so these were uh, a few of these very, very detailed um, very fine-grained analysis of surprising aspects of this world where you, where you can make, I think, surprising and somewhat worrying predictions about what might happen or what could plausibly happen or what would be the logical conclusion of everything we know today. Right. Um, the most entertaining part is, I think, the chapter on jokes because, and that <laughs> seems to be sort of the... the jokes or, yeah. or swearing, perhaps? Jokes and swearing, yeah. <laughs> what kind of... So the jokes will be that everybody, since everybody works with Susan at work, there will right. be jokes about Susans, and everybody will know a Susan joke, and right. So, and so it will be largely correct. So, so today, say an ethnicity is often a unit of, of a personality style, uh -huh. and we could have in, in a story there might be an Italian, <laughs> say, yeah, an Italian, and a German, and, German and, a and then Jew, they would yeah. have mm -hmm. representative personalities mm -hmm. from mm -hmm. those types, mm -hmm. uh, and a joke might have an Italian mm -hmm. or German, and because mm -hmm. again they're representatives. Mm -hmm. And now in this world, uh, these individual people become these iconic representatives. Mm -hmm. So, and just as today, uh, a joke or a story about an Italian or German might be somewhat political and they might be taking a stance whether Italians are good or bad or mm -hmm. whether it's pro or con. 
here a joker story about Sally would be somewhat political, and it how many, stands how many, about whether we like Sally. How many Sallys does it take to, to screw in a light bulb? Exactly. Yeah. Right. And so now um, stories don't have these neutral characters who are apolitical anymore. That is, every, every, every story is a story of someone who is important politically, that has an iconic meaning in this culture. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, you can go out of your way to have unknown characters and stories, but those will be unusual characters, because mm -hmm. most stories that are about usual circumstances mm -hmm. will be things about the usual characters. Mm -hmm. um, and in fact, this is related to sort of work specialization. In the modern world, we tend to create a professional persona that is different from the personality of the person who inhabits that persona. The generic lawyer, generic dentist. Oh, I see. Right? Mm -hmm. And so, say for an entertainer, uh, often an entertainer now in the modern world has a very distinctive persona, and that's an important part of being that persona. Uh, the entertainer, but uh, most professions aren't like that. Right? Mm -hmm. you, don't want the, you don't recommend that someone go see the funny dentist. Nope. Right? Nope or the dentist who tells that kind of joke, because there aren't that kind, unless you know a particular person, you recommend dentists in general or some other kind of business, right? But in the, age, in the age of M, when you say hire someone, you're less looking for a person who can fit the standard persona and therefore fit the standard job slot available for that person. You're instead going to hire a person who's very distinctive who you can fill all the jobs like that with people like that. Mm -hmm. And so now, people looking to be hired in jobs are looking to be distinctive personas. And they are being full personalities with lots of richness and detail that don't just fit into a professional persona right. because they are right. showing themselves to be the rich, detailed person that they are because that's the thing people know and are demanding. So, uh, you know, a company, all of the janitors could be Joe. <laughs> And mm -hmm. Joe is a certain style of janitor, and that's mm -hmm. the kind of janitor we want in this company. He's not just a generic janitor like today who acts like a generic janitor who walked down the hall and acts professional and as if his personality didn't have much to do with his job. Mm -hmm. Here, Joe is a particular kind of janitor. He has a style, and that's why we hired Joe. And we all know Joe, and we all know a Joe joke. Right. Uh -huh. And we all like Joe in some ways. Yep. We have some ways to tease Joe. He would have been selective for being <laughs> right. really good at this job as well. Of course. Yeah. But also having a style that fit with some of the yeah. other people at the office. Ah, yeah. Oh, so yeah, so the M world is quite conflict-free. Everybody... Well, yeah, it has conflicts, conflicts that we want. It has conflicts that we want, yes. You know, mm -hmm. if, if Fred and Joe tend to have a little antagonism a bit, and they're always like competing against each other, mm -hmm. maybe we want that on okay. our team. Maybe mm -hmm. we like the way mm -hmm. the dynamic of Fred and Joe having mm -hmm. this competition. Mm -hmm. They have a rivalry going, but that works for the office. But otherwise, they would be reasonably content. Let's get back They'll to swearing. What would be the worst <laughs> thing you could be in the M world? Well, so... Swearing is something that humans have done for a long time. Uh -huh. uh, it doesn't show up in our historical depictions of the ancients so much, but they did a lot of swearing. Oh, it does, doesn't it? <laughs> uh, well, well mm, not in, in literature, like, at least. Right, right, but not in costume dramas, perhaps. Not in costume <laughs> dramas. Well, certainly in Shakespeare, but that's not ancient. Right, but, right, yeah. exactly. Mm -hmm. So, in the modern world, we, we have taken on this persona that we don't like swearing and that we are, are too polite and, and civilized for that. Uh, some, some of us. Right. <laughs> and so swearing is something that's on the margins and, and disapproved of somewhat. But in fact, swearing is typically a very functional thing for work groups that are on the edge of, of collapsing or, or not being, you know, being able to handle their tasks. So today, uh, you know, people in restaurants, people on movie crews, uh, 
military groups, when, when there's a group of people who have to really work closely together and are often at the edge of being able to handle things, they, they are psychologically at the edge of what they can handle, uh -huh. swearing is really quite functional because it lets you read other people's how close to the edge are they, how well are they handling uh -huh. this, right? Uh, in ways that you can't really read if they're being very polite. And so in most work groups in history who are near the edge of, of collapsing or, or falling apart, Swearing is a big part of what they do because it's a way of not only showing where you are but probing other people for where they are in terms of can you handle this? Are you tough enough? Are you, are you managing this? You know, like in many work group, in many sort of old uh, working class groups, you picked a nickname for each person which was their most visible embarrassing mm -hmm, fault, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? You know, Told Sally. Stick was yeah. the mm -hmm. fat guy, mm -hmm. right, et cetera. And you constantly reminded them that we know about your weakness you're still one of us, but we're still going to press you on this weakness to see how sensitive you are about it, to see if you're, you can still handle things here, right? And so I can easily predict that since M's are much more commonly near the edge of handling their tasks and the edge of collapsing or breaking apart, they are going to need this tool of swearing to manage their emotional coherence in the same way that work groups all through history have. Mm -hmm. And that they will swear, therefore. Uh, because you know, that's functional. Um, that's, but again, so the key idea here is to say, well, what's swearing for? Where is its functionality? Where does it come from? What, what has created swearing? And then use a theory of that to mm -hmm. predict, well, this swearing become more or less mm -hmm. in the same world. So now we had, now we were really, really, really close at these individual M's. Let's, let's uh, zoom out and just uh, um, maybe end with describing how these worlds look physically from the outside because there are some, I think, n n not so obvious but very plausible descriptions about how the M-cities look, for instance. Right. So, so the main thing is that we today gain from joining cities, like we're in a city right now, but we aren't all in one big city on the Earth. But it's getting that close. Well, we're not there. We're, we're not certainly there. not moving as fast as we could. Nope. The main explanation is that travel congestion costs increase with city size. Mm -hmm. In larger cities, people spend a larger fraction of their time traveling. Los Angeles would be right. the perfect exactly. example. <laughs> okay, now the M's, uh, they also gain by being close to each other in cities. Why? This is this, this is a standard economics concept that the more other people you can easily interact with, the more you can specialize, and the more options you have of who to interact with. But Robin, we're all in virtual reality. It doesn't make doesn't make a difference whether my whether the container housing my computer is well, in Portugal so or on the Earth today. If you have a good enough connection, you can have a virtual rea reality interaction with anybody in the Earth and not know where they are. Via Skype, right, for example. But right that's because of the speed we're at. When M's run at a thousand times human speed, they need to be a lot closer to each other before the speed of light becomes a limit. So in fact, they need to be within 100 kilometers of each other, say. If they're farther away from that, they will notice the delay by noticing how far away somebody is. And the delay in a conversation will be slightly maladaptive right. because... Which will make it less natural and comfortable. So they want to be close enough to each other so that they can have an interaction without noticing how far away the other person is. And that sets a typical city size scale of, say, 100 kilometers if they are interacting at the... Um, if their speed is 1,000 times human speed. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so now within the city... Um, we might imagine them all congregating into the same city, be really fixed, except they might, if they actually had to move their brains around within the city, that would be a problem, but they don't have to move their brains around. So they can have much bigger, denser cities than we can, you see. So 
they can't be spread all across the earth, but they could be in a big clump pretty close to each other and then interact a lot. And so their cities can just be bigger. They could be in one or a few main cities. Mm -hmm. leaving most of the rest of the earth for the biological humans because the M's don't want it for at least a while. Mm -hmm. And the cities would be where? In Silicon Valley or in Los Angeles? So the city would, so cities tend to be hard to move. Right. So there's a number of ways to predict where cities would be. One of the factors is they will start be where they started, which would probably be in a big data center mm -hmm. near the major customers that they'll be initially interacting with. So the first M's will be serving humans in the richest parts of the world. So that could be Norway or northern China, uh, et cetera, where right, they're so, near yeah. other concentrations that they're serving. The M city is not in Silicon Valley, even though the engineers building the M right. is maybe in Silicon Valley, but the data center hosting so, the M's exactly. will be in Norway. So the M city starts from the data centers. Mm -hmm. It has to be the data centers that are close to where the customers are initially, because that's easiest to serve, mm -hmm. but also has to be where it's cheap to make a data center. Mm -hmm. Now, right in the middle of an existing human city is kind of hard to make a data center. So they'll probably values? be near existing concentrations of humans, but maybe not right in the middle, unless they can just take over and buy a whole human city. And, and that depends on whether okay. how feasible that is. Fine, but they could buy Iceland, and then they would right. have cool and uh, right. energy. And, so, and another consideration is they would like cheaper cooling. Mm -hmm. And so the more they can be near lots of cold ice water, say, mm -hmm. the more they could have cheaper cooling. Mm -hmm. They might also do air cooling, but again, cooling is helpful in part, it's one of many considerations. It'll also want to be near lots of raw materials. It'll actually be prohibitive to ship raw materials all across the earth. So they'll basically so make everything Iceland. locally. Yeah, not Iceland. Well, no I don't know. They'll need to be near whatever minerals and other things they would oil that they'll need mm -hmm. to build everything out of because almost all manufacturing will be local. Mm -hmm. So we have few, maybe dozens, maybe less, highly right? concentrated M data centers slash cities near cold areas, but and also min And minerals, and, and each min other. So each it might be like, there's a few of them that are pretty close to each other because they really value being close to each other. There, might, there may be an isolated, uh, five isolated M cities in Canada, and there may be five M cities in Scandinavia. Right, hmm? uh, right. so hmm? um, now, because there's so few cities, nations and cities merge. Mm -hmm. it, they are nation states. Yeah. Uh, and right. each city is a nation right. state because they communicate, they prefer to communicate with each other because right. of this boring speed and, of light. And that we each clan choose. that's in high demand will probably be in multiple cities. We, did we explain clan? We did not explain clan. Okay. Well, clan would be the name for all the copies of the same original human. So all the Robins. Right, all the Joes, etc. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So they form a clan, they have a strong bond with each other, they trust each other, they understand each other well. They will be more like families than families are because right. they they're the even same more age. like each other than identical twins are. Fine. So they will be highly nepotistic, tribal. Right. right. And they may be very egalitarian internally, uh, share a lot of resources. But All the uh, Joes will make sure that none of the Joes is really poor. Or really badly treated. So within know. a clan, people will be very equal and take care of each we'll other and choice. like each other. So different people will have different clan styles and that right, will be right, one of right, the right, issues. Right. So some people might not mind inequality within themselves, others will. And, and the, mm -hmm. there will just be different governance styles. Joe clan will be governed by a Joe, and they'll be governed in the style Joes like, and some of them might be democracies, some of them will be monarchies, um, who And knows? The, the Joe clan may be universally much, much poorer than the Robin clan. Right, it's because that's just their style. But, but most likely, don't if really Joes care. are in great demand, they'll probably be in demand in all the cities. Oh, there are Joes in more cities. Right, and so there'll right. be this loyalty conflict. <laughs> uh, if only Joes are in our city, we can, the city trusts Joes more. If there are Joes in other cities too, 
Mm -hmm. Okay. And we're, there's less of an issue but, about whether so we trust Joe's here. There might be a diversity of government styles within, right. between uh, within and nations. Yeah, right. Well, among the clans. Among the clans. Right. And the, for the cities, um, democracy is a little less feasible and autocracy is a little more feasible in the M world. And so that means on the margin they will use democracy less. They'll still use it. But I'm allowed to maintain some kind of hopeful vision that there will be a, a Scottish M city somewhere in the Hebrides that, that still maintains the standards of the Enlightenment and all the other M cities will have been turned into authoritarian hellholes. They might be wonderful authoritarian worlds. Now, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so, so leaders have some advantages over our leaders. Uh, a leader can be immortal, first of all. Secondly, oh, a, leader, yeah. a leader can c protect themselves with a cadre of very loyal associates who are copies of themselves. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, so they, oh. they are sure that the royal guards are very loyal. They would all be Joes, actually. They exactly. would be uh, Uncle, Uncle Joe Stalin. So Stalin could finally be surrounded by a Politburo right. of exactly. other Stalins. So as long as Stalins yes. get along with each other, yep. then they will mm -hmm. reassure each other mm -hmm. by way. One M, one vote doesn't work very well because it's so easy to make very slow M's that are very cheap. So more likely you'd have speed-weighted voting for M, vote for democracy. Oh, let's spell this out because otherwise if I want to win the election, I will just make a million copies of myself that are very, very slow, slow and just, cheap. just fast enough to, to vote. make one vote, yeah. And then I will end them. Right. Suicidal so voter buying. Right, so that just means you kind Beautiful. of buy elections by yeah. buying copies. So that yeah. doesn't work very well. Doesn't work. Mm -hmm. But speed-weighted voting might, which is the, the, the number of votes that a person has is their speed over, the, say, the whole time or since the last election one or one vote, I can see there's an right. entire chapter Right, but there. you can see yeah. simple democracy has to have some variety mm -hmm. there, okay? Mm -hmm. an another thing is you can trust leaders more in this world. So today, one of the problems with having an autark is that the fact that you can't trust them. But, uh, and one of the reasons why you can't trust them is they claim to have secrets. They can't tell you everything. Uh, but M's can tell you everything in ways that keep the secrets. That's a nice crypto exercise. <laughs> yeah, please, yeah, do that. Yeah, okay. Th that appeals to computer scientists. So, right. So, yeah. so um, put, na put names on them. We have a, we have an autark right. called so, Joe. So say the leader of your nation says we must uh, invade our neighbor. Sorry, uh, you know we we must do the following military exercise. I can't tell you exactly why, but but, but it's just necessary. This is uh, President George. Right. And, and you are not sure you can trust George, mm? right? Uh, in our world, you're just kind of stuck. And this is one of the problems with giving George too much power is he might claim this and then do things for his own reasons. Mm -hmm. Now, in the world of M's, there's a nice, elegant solution, which is you say to George, I need you to explain your reasons to me. And so then a copy of George and a copy of you go inside of a safe, an enclosed safe. And inside the safe, they can explain all their reasons to you. And at the end, your copy of you has a job of, of choosing one bit. Was I persuaded or not? And then the only thing that comes out of the safe is that one bit back to you. Was I persuaded? So in the end, you can now hear, yes, he has a good reason. Or no, he doesn't. And now you After don't which, know. And, and now, so now the leader has a way to communicate to you that you should believe him. He says, we must invade. You, you do the safe test. You get the bit back that says, yes, he has a good reason. We, we ended both copies in the right, safe, right? inside the yes, safe. Yes, yes, but yes. you have the bit back yep. that says, yep. yes, there's a good reason. Trust George. Yeah. So this will appeal to the cryptographers in the audience because this is an example of a so-called zero-knowledge protocol. It's a protocol right. that you run. The cost right. here is actually just uh, ending two copies of M's. Right, and letting them run for a short time, and it's yes. actually relatively mm -hmm. cheap. Mm -hmm. So in this way, M's can do really fine-grained sharing of secrets in that mm -hmm. they can share uh, something that's based on other things and share just the result without mm -hmm. the parts that it's mm -hmm. based on. Um, which, which means that leaders can be more trusted.
and, and for example, for example, this, a society might have limits on free speech. Mm -hmm. And you might think, well, why have these limits on free speech? And they might say, well, we can't explain the limits for free speech to you. Otherwise, we'd be talking about it, and that would be overcoming the problem here. But they can say, well, we can go into a safe, and you can explain these limits in free speech in the safe, oh, and we can now decide. The, because the dangerous information would be something like building a bomb or something like Whatever that. Whatever it is, right? Mm -hmm. And now they can convince you that limits on free speech should be imposed via this process whereby the limits are re relaxed inside the safe. Yeah, uh, they will never convince me about the limits of free well, speech. Well, we could find that out. We can <laughs> yes, see what bit comes out. That's could, the whole point. Yes, yes. We'll see whether you're yeah. convinced or not, yeah. right? I will resist that. Um, so so the, the M cities are now racks of containers containing computer hardware? Dense racks. Dense racks. Dense racks that are run as fast as they can without melting. In the middle of the city, because right. we assume and that... Right, and so they need a lot of cooling. <laughs> they need so much cooling, in fact, that I estimate roughly half of city volume is devoted to cooling pipes. You're really eager to cram cooling fluids in and out of this thing so that you can run this stuff as fast as possible. Um, and my, the simplest way to implement that is cold water with ice pellets. That's, mm -hmm. that's actually you know, a, very, a way to have a lot of density of cooling power in a very ordinary material. These are some of the easier chapters to write, right? Because we more or less understand how to cool Although I had, hardware. Although I had to learn some literature about to see this, yep. but yes. So uh, we, we know of efficient ways to cool large volumes where the overhead is logarithmic, actually. So you might think um, cities might be limited by just the fact it was just hard to cram enough cooling volume through it that uh, you just couldn't make them very big. But it turns out we actually know efficient ways to cool large volumes with a, only a modest logarithmic overhead. And then the fastest M's would be running in the middle of the city where the hardware is most expensive and because they are extremely efficient. Right, so we expect the price of volume to go up toward the middle and the price of energy to go up toward the middle because it's just harder to get things in and out of there. We also expect, say, the middle to be taller and so weight gets more expensive higher up. And so we expect toward the matter, you know, that's just a priority place where you pay more rent to be there. And so the ones who, who can afford to pay more would be the ones who are more valued and also run faster. Mm -hmm. And so uh, there'd be just an ordinary spectrum. This is actually familiar in our cities today. Uh, people right. who are richer or more productive uh, can afford central locations and others have oh, to be farther okay, away. Yeah. So, the, okay, the city does not really differ from a modern city in that sense. It's right. Most of the efficiency is going right. to be in the middle. Cities are taller in the middle. Cities are denser in the middle. And most meetings are held in the middle of the city. Right. Now, now these cities, though, are just crammed full of computer hardware. Yeah. Uh, and so, in reality, are kind of functional looking. But they see their cities in virtual reality. So they would see a mapping of their city that roughly had the same positions and relationships of things to be useful to them, but it doesn't have to be exactly faithful. It would be a beautified version of it, mm -hmm. which would be inspiring and, mm -hmm. and uh, the city they see. Mm -hmm. uh, so they might see gleaming spires and broad boulevards, shining sunlight, etc., because that's how they see their city. But Functionally, they need to know where things are because they go places and they want to know what's fast to interact with, what's easy to get to, etc. Those are just things they need to know. Mm -hmm. And outside of these M cities, oh, there are, yeah, we need to talk, we started talking about robots because not all the M's are within a living in virtual reality. Some of the M's we well, assume. Whenever they're doing run. physical tasks, like they might be moving materials in a truck from one place to another, they might be running a mine, they might be managing a factory, they might be assembling computer hardware. 
perhaps disassembling old retired hardware, they will need to, at those times, be paying attention to the physical world and using physical actuators and physical sensors. Um, but they don't need to permanently attach themselves to the such things. So it's like us driving a car. When you need to drive a car, you get into a car and drive. And for the period that you're driving, it's as if the car was your body. Right. And yeah. We, our brains seem to be really and good at understanding. And we can adapt to a wide range of machines yeah. as if they were our body. And we, we in, invent stories that this is actually my arm, even though right, it's a exactly. robot arm. And we just map our senses and our arms and legs onto the machines we have. So people do that when they work steam shovels and work all sorts of machines. They treat them as if it was part of their body. So Ems would just quickly be able to move into whatever machine was needed to do a task. It might be a spider shape, it might be something else, whatever it is that's for the task. But when might they're done with huge, the task and want to take a break, they can just go back to looking and feeling like a human because that's probably more comfortable. Right. And the robots might be tiny in order to handle the piping right, systems exactly. in the middle of the city. Or and then the speeds would be huge. matched to whatever physical tasks they have. So the minds only need to you know, be fast enough to control whatever the reaction time of the device they're working with is. If, today, if you're driving a you know, tank oil tanker, <laughs> the reaction time is pretty slow. You, you yeah. don't actually need yeah. a very fast mind for something like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, but whenever action gets faster, maybe you speed up your mind to focus on a mm -hmm. fast activity. So, so, so the minds of, um, and also the body size is matched to the speed. So interesting, mm -hmm. like, like our minds happen to be at roughly the right speed for our bodies. That is, we have a tenth of a second reaction time, which is roughly the fastest period we can produce in any of our fluctuations of our body. As opposed to certain insects or very right. small birds. But if, if we make our body a thousand times smaller, then it can have fluctuations a thousand times faster, and then you need a brain a thousand times faster to manage it. Animals like that exist? Exactly. Mm -hmm. So M's were a thousand times faster. If they want a body match their speed, it would be a body a thousand times shorter than our body. And in that world, uh, their body would feel natural in many ways, although some things would be different. Gravity feels much weaker when you're much smaller. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, frictional resistance in water and air is much more uh, bothersome. Fluctuations are more noticeable. Air. Light has more, uh, you know, diffraction. There, there are some things that in smaller bodies mm -hmm. they would notice is different, but in many ways it's like an ordinary body, smaller mm -hmm. and faster. And then outside of this partially uh, robot-inhabited city of racks and racks of computer hardware, at least for a brief time, there may be biological humans walking around in right. the rest of Norway. So I estimate the whole age of M to last a year or two, beyond which I'm not going to make predictions. Yeah, that's, again, when you see this the first time, that seems dramatic. Why is it only a year? So from so, the outside. Right. So I, I'm making analogies with the last eras we've seen, the era of animal brains and then foragers and then farmers and then humans. Each of these eras lasted between 8 and 16 doublings before something else happened. And if the economy doubles every month, then in a year or two, you see that many doublings. And so. That's plausibly the scale at which you would, something else would happen. Because the M-City runs maybe a thousand times faster than one year right. of actual human time. It's a thousand the, years for them. And a thousand years of M-time will probably be technologically as advanced right. as... So, so they would experience a lot of social change over a thousand years. Just like we did from a thousand right. years ago. And so, again, that's how I set my boundaries in my analysis. I'm not predicting the entire future. No. I'm just predicting the next era after ours. That's pretty different, but not everything happens that era. In particular, space colonization doesn't happen much. In right, era. they don't care about going to the moon. That's it, also strange. They can't do very much in two years no. about that. In fact, they, they focus on smaller ex a smaller section of the Earth. In fact, from the point of view of the M-Cities, other parts of the Earth as if were as if they're another part of the galaxy. They're just far away. They take a long time to get through. They're not very... They, they are hard to interact so with. So slow. 
they might even be opaque and not even know what's happening there. If, if you know, they might have stories about us, right? I guess right. the M's would feel towards us like right. we feel towards Shakespeare or and right. the so ancients. And the way we think of a galaxy as a vast thing and things far away or unknown and strange, they could think of the Earth that way. Ah. The Earth becomes a vast thing with far away things unknown because, for them, as they get faster, th the scales expand. And when eight-year-old uh, Tor one uh, is spun up again from a copy and goes to school and learns about the history of its species and learns about, say, the Industrial Age and uh, right. uh, the Middle Age Ages, that M will be horrified, I guess, learning about a world where there is disease and well, filth. Every era including ours, tell a story about the past that are somewhat self-serving and emphasize the ways that their era looks favorable compared to the past. Uh, the farming world did that for foragers. The farming world saw themselves as civilized and foragers were wild beasts and farmers were proud of that difference, right? Mm -hmm. And then we today are more forager-like and we're proud of how we are more self-realized and richer and comfortable and less violent, perhaps than uh, farming era people. So we each focus on the differences and we tell an origin story of how the good people made our good world out of the old bad world mm -hmm. <laughs> through heroic mm -hmm. uh, frontiers mm -hmm. and changes, mm -hmm. right? And the M's will tell the same sort of stories about the heroic origin of their world and how their world is so much better in so many ways than even our world today and the worlds before. They will have nostalgia and perhaps gratitude for worlds before but less respect, which is how we think about our ancestors as well, if you realize. We, we find stories interesting of our ancestors, but we often feel a little proud that we are smarter and more knowledgeable and we think we're more moral than Morally they were. Morally superior, yeah, right. yeah, right. They are, they and are the M's will do that as well with us. So the M's will, first of all, focus on how much more productive they are. They are hardworking, they are smart, they are conscientious. And take pride in that. And they take strong pride in that, and they will see the biological humans and their ancestors as much lazier, stupider, uh, you know, less committed, less uh, loyal, less, um, they lied more, etc. cetera, uh, less knowing themselves, because the M's will be proud of the fact they understand themselves and they've come mm -hmm. to terms with their oh, limits yeah. and who oh, they yeah. are. Uh, the, the M's will be proud of their productivity and their vast expansion of, of their capabilities and all the new things they've learned. And they will be happy about not having disease and, and they will be And they will be okay with their Malthusian world. They will think of us as prissy, a little too, you know, unwilling to deign ourselves to be like most humans who ever were who had to work enough to survive. They will think of that as, you know, they have to justify their existence. They should have to justify their existence. Almost everybody has to justify their existence. You industry area people think you are entitled to exist. So the era we live in you sometimes describe as dream time. Dream time, yes. That is we are us right now. Unusual exception in history. We have a number of unusual characteristics that will make ours an interesting era to play stories in, but uh, also able to be criticized from the outside. So uh, there's in some ways in which the M's have things in common with our distant forager ancestors. One is they living at subsistence. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, they are in, in tune with the world. They are, they're also um, going to be, uh, they're, like farmers, they will be religious and loyal and uh, self-controlled. Um, and in the dream time, we are rich and we feel like uh, being rich means we no longer efface the constraints and um, 
con, you know, con, things that our ancestors had. Our, our ancestors had to justify their existence by producing enough food to survive. They had to worry about military threats from outsiders. They had to worry about diseases killing them off. They, they, ha they had to not assume they could exist or should exist. They had to think, is our, say, nation militarily strong enough mm -hmm. to resist an outsider? Are we inviting a threat by seeming lazy and, mm -hmm. and, and you know, et cetera? Are we being suspicious enough? And that just thought, thought of that as their duty. But we today don't think that's our duty. We don't think it should have to be our duty. Well, in this tiny window, which, in this which may time, just right? be a few generations. Right. right? So we can get away with not doing the things that our ancestors always had to do to survive and that our descendants, we, we don't have to have as many babies as possible. We don't have to be prepared constantly for war. We don't have to make sure we can be as productive as possible so our children don't starve. These are things we feel entitled to be. We are entitled to search and self-discover ourselves and travel the world and pick the career that, that feels the most satisfying. And, you know, we, we feel this is the world that is our world and we are entitled to it. And that's the dream time. Mm -hmm. And it's an exciting time to tell a story and because characters in this, in this world have a lot of freedom. As, as we said before, rich people to decide what they do, you have to know what they want. Right. And so our characters do different things depending on what they want. Whereas a character in a world that's near subsistence mostly does what they want based on what they have to do. Excellent. Did we cover everything? Uh, well, we didn't talk about software engineers. I don't know if you want to talk about that. But Let's talk about software engineers <laughs> then. That's highly specific and maybe a good way to end this uh, super brutal right. uh, view of the future. But it gives you another sort of concrete image. Yeah, because the details here are right. really fascinating. And the right. more detail we add, the easier it, is it becomes so to, to think about To imagine the world, right? So over the last half century, software engineering practice has changed because the cost of computer hardware processing and memory has fallen by so many orders of magnitude. Long ago, you had to be very stingy with these things because they were very expensive. Well, long ago, there were no software engineers, right? The, well, say the discipline 70 years ago, right? Then well, there were programmers, say. There were programmers like. 70 years ago, right. and software engineering started as a discipline in oh, the 70s, okay. 80s. Well, wherever you want to draw hmm? the line. But the key point is, long ago, they had to pay very close attention to resources uh, because <laughs> it was very expensive. Yes. And so they spent a lot of thinking time for any one piece of code because it was important to get it right. Fit it into two and, kilobytes and, exactly. of RAM and or And now something. over time as things get cheaper and cheaper, relatively the, the software engineer is expensive. And so they move up and up in levels of extract, abstraction. They think at higher levels and they make high level descriptions. And those are automatically translated to low levels in relatively inefficient ways. But that doesn't matter so much because it's so cheap. Let's just spell this out. So we are, we are used to writing programming languages in higher and higher, more universal uh, right. increasingly functional programming languages right. which are translated by a sequence of compilers right. down to assembly code but I remember that when I started programming in 82 right. or something like that I actually wrote in machine code. Because you had to understand it a bit. Yeah, but today people don't even bother to understand no, the machine no, code. They no. just understand we, the higher level languages. I certainly don't teach this right. at all even though I did it and, and found right. it enjoyable. So the nature of programming or software engineering has changed over the years because of the relative cost of hardware and software. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, there's also the subtler point of parallel hardware or serial hardware. Mm -hmm. uh, so we can now, uh, in the past these things went together, but in the last 10 or 15 years, the, the cost of serial hardware hasn't fallen so much, but the cost of parallel hardware has. So um, now it becomes more cheaper and cheaper to write parallel programs relative to serial programs, and we more have to push people to try to figure out how to write in parallel if they can. It's terrible. Right, yeah. but, but it, you know, the cost <laughs> tempts you to yes. try. But it's, it's harder, which is why you, mm -hmm. you don't want to. So mm -hmm. Now, for M's, 
who are the software engineers of this new world, they are implemented in computer hardware. And so now, when computer hardware falls by a factor of two, both the cost of they and the cost of the computers they work for falls at the same rate. The engineer is uh, running on the substrate, on the very substrate that they're that he or programming she for. Is programming for. Right. For and so mm -hmm. and brains are also very parallel pieces of software. Mm -hmm. So basically, the cost of writing parallel software and the cost of an M stay at the same relative cost for a long time now. So instead of having radically different software styles over time as the relative costs change, now they would go at a back to the future moment where they went to some previous trade-off and then they stay there for a long time. So just before M's are possible, we'll have very expensive human software engineers. Yes. And all of a sudden we'll have much cheaper M software engineers. And now we'll be tempted to dig lower into the hardware to go back to a lower level because we'll be using much cheaper software engineers to program the computers. Mm -hmm. So that will be a back mm -hmm. to the future mm -hmm. moment where they go back to a previous mm -hmm. style. And then they'll stay at that level for a long time as the relative trade-off stays there. As opposed to becoming more valuable relative to the computer right, hardware. Exactly. Now Good. for <laughs> serial programming, which is most of what we do today, yes. in fact, the cost of the computer hardware will, ra will rise relative to the cost of the M hardware. So, some, so say an mm -hmm. M was thinking of something thinking in their head or running a serial program to calculate something. Today they'll think, oh, I, serial program is cheap enough, I'll just have it do that. In the future they might like switch back to doing it in their head. <laughs> because the serial hardware is getting relatively more expensive mm -hmm, with mm -hmm, time. Mm -hmm. They either have to find a way to write it in parallel code or to do it in their head. Right. So, <laughs> so that's okay. the life of M software engineers, you see, has this back to the future moment and then a stability that we don't see in our world where relative costs stay more stable over time. Excellent. Thank you for turning this back from swearing and robots and the sex right. life now, of The last thing humans. we should say is that we should talk about evaluating the world because we put that off. We put that off very deliberately. Right. But we should come back to it. I would be happy to. You <laughs> seem to normally resist that exercise. But, 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 I, but I want to make sure we, we directly address it. Go ahead. Right. So uh, now you should just realize that a century ago, if you had asked somebody to evaluate our world, and told them about um, all the details, they would probably just love it or hate it based on the first few things they heard because your world is really just weird. And there are just some things they're likely to hate. Oh, depending on whether I started with, say, gender equality or... Or the absence, fact we've, or uh, the uh, lack of religion, the lack of patriotism, which they would hate, or the fact that we don't have to work so much, which they might like, or the fact that we're inside a, a building and don't see nature so much, which they might dislike, or the fact that we that are warm all winter, which I, they might like. Our children don't die from <laughs> exactly. disease, which they would right, love. So depending on which things they heard, they might... Because it's really hard to just get your head around a whole different world that's not your world. Right. You, get, you need to understand it seriously. You, seriously, you start somewhere and get one detail after the other, but the first detail cannot but inform right. your evaluation of the later details. Right, right. So, so with that in mind, you have to spec, you should be cautious about reacting to any one thing in this description. You should be trying to like hold judgment back and look at the whole package of all of it before you try to draw some judgments. Traditionally, human brains seem to be really bad at that because... Right, uh, which is why I'm mentioning it and, and trying to call it attention. So, my first thing I'd say is, this is a world that's more alien than our world from our original thing. So, one general trend in history is alienation increases. Mm -hmm. That is, the worlds we find ourselves in are just different from the worlds we were made for. And that means we have to be alienated to adapt to the world. So, it is a more alienated world and that's a negative. Uh, but we're already in a pretty alien world at the moment compared to our the worlds we grew up in. So we're already pretty far into alienation. Yeah, certainly compared to the, 
to 30,000 years ago, right, when exactly. we were also psychologically adapted Ex to the environment. Exactly, right. Mm -hmm. But I think our world is still okay, even if it's alienated. The current, the world, the well, we're living time, in right yes. now. Yeah, right now, great. of course. Yeah. And I think even the farming world was okay relative mm -hmm. to not existing. I think there were mm -hmm. lives worth living on average. Mm -hmm. I mean, sometimes not, but mostly on average, lives worth living. They smiled, they were happy. They were recognizably human, having meaningful lives. Some of them did. Right? right? And I think if we look across the wide variety of different cultures that have existed and the different lifestyles that have existed, even different classes, mostly they had lives worth living. However, from my single vantage point, I would normally prefer my own life, but your, that's just your a lives bias. might be better, right? Yeah, that's, but oh, but I'm I'm also biased to sort of sure. just invent my my life right. being better. But now, if your life is better, it's still probably not better by a factor of a hundred. Might be better by a factor of two at most ten, but not a factor of a hundred. I think my life is a lot better than say King Louis the Fifteenth and his life. Not would have by been a factor of a hundred. Not by a factor of a hundred. True. Good. Okay. Fine. So that kind of bounds the relative scale yeah. here. And so if you look at a world of M's which has trillions of creatures, mm -hmm. we have to say, we're not sure if their lives are as worth living as ours, but we're sure there's a lot more of them. And if you're willing to let multiply the number of lives times the value per life, as long as there's more than 10 times many of them and they are less than 10 times less valuable, you kind of say it's an okay world. Mm -hmm. It's a world that you might not mind being replaced, replacing our world on that basis at least. Uh, that's a weak kind of claim to make. So mm -hmm. basically, it seems that humans are pretty adaptable to many different social circumstances. People find meaning and happiness in a pretty wide range of lives and worlds. It's not that nothing matters, it's that people are pretty adaptable. This is a common observation of you know, anthropology and sociology, that people are culturally adaptive. Mm -hmm. We find ways to, f to find meaning and, and happiness in whatever world we show up in. As long as, I mean, we can have really miserable worlds, but like concentration camp or something. But oh, slavery, <laughs> I mean, for right? many people, life is suffering. Right, but honestly, I would even say most slaves in history had mm -hmm. lives worth living. Mm -hmm. yeah. If you read their writings, you read mm -hmm. the story of their lives, I, mm -hmm. I gotta say most slaves seem to have had lives mm -hmm. worth living. Mm -hmm. Even if it's better if they weren't slaves. So mm -hmm. that's the, the rough basis on which I might argue for the value of the M world. I also, just another angle would just say, look, you shouldn't expect to be able to choose between radically different futures. You are just one small part of a large world. Mostly we aren't choosing the world at all. Mostly you should expect to be able to move the world slightly in one direction or another. So I think the question you should really ask is not which radically different future do I prefer, but in a scenario like this, which way would I prefer things to go? So I have some preferences about the M world, about which way I would prefer it to be moved if I could move it slightly. So do I. So this gets back to a larger question that I've been thinking about a lot about this idea of the, the value of technological prophecy. Because in some sense, um, so, so here's something I'm, I'm obsessing about currently. The idea of prophesizing the future seems to be, be uh, the same fallacy as historicism. The idea that, that history proceeds along certain laws and can be understood as a function of these laws. And then we... Uh, uh, which I think is a mistake. This is called the poverty of historicism sometimes. And, uh, and in the same sense, the future is not a single place that we can predict. So, so then you offer this alternative that there may be various futures. One of them is the M world. Right. And then you can predict this place. Again, you're not making the mistake of thinking of this place as a right. static thing that we arrive at. I, I'm, there's, Instead, a disti there's a distinction between which future we can predict will happen 
And whatever will happen, how much control do we have individually mm -hmm. on what will happen? Mm -hmm. So there could be a wide range of things that could happen mm -hmm. that from our point of view, we can't tell which will happen. Mm -hmm. Now, one of them will happen. Mm -hmm. And counterfactually, if we did one thing or another, a different future would happen. Right. And the question is, how big a difference is that? So I'm arguing for that second thing as a small difference, even if the first thing is a wide range. There's a wide range of possible futures, but you yourself shouldn't expect to be able to make a big difference between them. You yourself should expect to make a small difference to yes. the future. And so you should think about what small differences you prefer. Mm -hmm. That's the useful choice you can make. Mm -hmm. That is, for any one scenario, which direction do you want it to move? Mm -hmm. uh, and you can think usefully about that, and then you could usefully act to push in that direction. Mm -hmm. Now, if there are multiple futures, any one action might produce a different outcome in the different futures, and now you have to make a judgment about which is more likely to decide which way to push. Because we're not claiming that we can predict the effect of this push, right? Because it's, in general, right. it's very difficult to predict right. social change just from... But you, I might say, if the age of M is what happens, then what changes would you like to see to it? Mm -hmm. Now, to make other actions today, you'll have to say, but how sure am I that this is the scenario versus others? And you'll wonder how robust any action choice is across that. But that's a wider scope than we have time for. But mm -hmm. we could at least ask, in this world, what would you prefer to see? And I have some obvious preferences about this world. You will tell us? Yes. Oh. So w one obvious preference is, if M's were initially enslaved and badly treated by humans, it won't go well for the biological humans later on when the M's are in full control. Because this is, a, this is one of the <laughs> questions that I often get. Why would these M's, why can't we just treat them as slaves? Yes. That's a gamble that you can maintain that level of control. If you lose that level of control, then humans are quite vulnerable to the M's. So the M's are fundamentally more productive, uh, smarter, faster, cleverer. Uh, the economic pressures will be to let them run a thousand times faster than humans. So human oversight will have to be at a very high level. M's will have to be authorized to make a lot of pretty detailed choices. Mm -hmm. um, it doesn't work that well having slaves with that much discretion. And slavery doesn't work very well anyway, right? Compared to, say, just uh, well, unfettered capitalism. Well, in history, um, we've had periods when land was scarce and when labor was scarce. When labor is scarce, wages are high, and there's a point to having slaves because it costs less to feed a slave than to hire a free worker. But when land is scarce and labor is plentiful, wages fall to a subsistence level, and there's no point to owning a slave. The value of a slave is near zero because it costs as much to feed a slave as it does to hire a free worker. So the age of M is that sort of situation where mm -hmm. There's not much point to owning a slave because they're already as cheap as they could get because of the plentiful yeah. M workers. Now, yes. <laughs> it's, it's wonderful right? that we can avoid slavery by having, now, a, no. having a world that is even more terrible. Now, yeah. There have been times in the past where, say, you could get more work out of a slave than a free worker because you could, say, torture them to work harder than a free worker might work. Yeah. That worked best in relatively simple physical tasks yeah. like picking yeah. cotton yeah. or something. Yeah. When we went to, say, house slaves or city slaves who had much more complicated jobs and needing a lot more discretion, they were typically given as much freedom and treated as well as free workers mm -hmm. because otherwise it didn't go well. So basically there's not that much point. No, and torturing, torturing a programmer doesn't make, make right. any sense, especially if the programmer lacks programming. Then Right, and especially like, again, what we'd like is for the story, the history of the transition to be the M's being grateful for the humans for helping to enable and create the transition. The, the source who created and mm -hmm. helped, the us being mm -hmm. the resistors mm -hmm. and uh, dominators that they had mm -hmm. to escape from, 
doesn't work very well for them treating humans better later. Um, the other thing I would really like out of the transition is that um, there's a danger that initially the MWR will look at the currently most productive humans at the time, which are, say, Ivy League school graduates who are mostly white male mm -hmm. upper class people mm -hmm. and fill the M world with copies of those. Mm -hmm. And uh, basically most of the rest of the Earth's culture has very little heritage in the M world. That's a scenario that could happen if there's just an eagerness to grab the very few productive and, and not much of an eagerness to go search in the space of the rest of humans for productive M's. And especially if there's some sort of cultural matching where the other humans are just not well matched culturally to the ones who are initially the popular mm -hmm. ones who mm -hmm. then are sufferers because of that. So mm -hmm. I, I would really prefer if once M, it becomes possible to create M's that they search far and wide for human children to, who are promising M's. And that needs, so there's a, cult, there's a really strong cultural obstacle here which could prevent this, which is initially Brain scans to create M's will be destructive. They will destroy the brains in the process. Oh, destroy as in kill. Yes, right? <laughs> exactly. And secondly, very quickly the M economy will, instead of preferring humans at the peak of their career as a lawyer or engineer or professor of algorithms, they will prefer, say, five-year-olds who are flexible and able to learn the new different work jo right. jobs needed in the M world. So we have the prospect of the M economy going around to the parents of the world saying, could we destructively scan your five-year-old child? Oh, and now I have the hope of ending this conversation with having Robin Hansen tell us some positive good values, and then we are at a system that tries to find five-year-olds to kill. Let's go well, on. Right, but the whole point is, we're asking to scan your five-year-old child to give it a chance to become a successful yes. M. Yes. But most of them will fail this, they will be unsuccessful, but we are doing this as a way. And you can imagine many nations in the world initially just saying no. Oh, you're saying that this selective pressure is going to select certain uh, cultures. Right. If many cultures refuse to allow their five-year-old childs to be scanned for an important period, say a year in human time, mm -hmm. while they think about it, mm -hmm. which is a millennia in M time, by the time <laughs> Nigeria approves its five-year-old children to be scanned, it may be such a cultural mismatch between the people who have now been M's for a thousand years in this world that they may not have much of an opportunity to join and compete. Because Let's just spell this out, because the M world will have now suddenly been populated by a particularly poor but highly educated Southeast Asian city right. that just found it useful to maybe force, because it was an authoritarian government to force whatever random reason they right. approved it and other people didn't and then we have an M world that is uh, selected from a very narrow part of the humanity and that would be not very good it would also not right. be uh, the M world would not be incentivized to do that okay but you're telling me there may be other reasons that the M world doesn't control that mean that their access to intelligent right. five-year-olds so, so exactly initially the M world will be a small part of the world it will be making peace with the humans it will be compromising and accommodating the humans as best it can to prosper and that may be accommodating arbitrary perhaps regretful limitations that mm -hmm. parts of the world place mm -hmm. on who can try to be an M and this observation you make because this might actually be something that we could usefully avoid if, if you think perhaps about it. right the warning is if you take too long to wonder whether to allow your people to be scanned to become m's you may be preventing them mm -hmm. from populating and being a, mm -hmm. at least part of them being a successful part of the m world 
for the brief part in which this society will exist. Yes. Hmm? Oh, I mean, so the interesting thing, if the M world lasts only a year or two in human time, Human, human behavior is very easy to predict. Human culture can hardly change in a year or two. All of a sudden, everybody loses their job. A lot of them get really rich fast, and that's all that happens to humans. And so that's actually relatively easy to predict because we've seen in history what happens when people get rich <laughs> and they don't have to work and they decide to do something for a couple of years. We, we've seen the range of that sort of thing, so that's what happens to humans. Well, on that happy note, <laughs> I think well, we can end thoughtful this. Thoughtful note, at least. It's very, very nice chatting. And <laughs> I hope our listeners are now scratching their heads wondering, does this make any sense Excellent. whatsoever? <laughs> or buy a copy of the book, The Age of M, by what? Robin Hanson, now available in paperback. Now available in paperback. Well. Robin, thanks a lot for coming. Thanks for having me. And thanks for listening. Yeah.